0: Okay, I'll get started
1: by just welcoming all of you guys. Good morning. Welcome. Sawadee kab. Sawadee kab. Welcome to all of you guys. We're going to start our class this morning with meditation. We're going to do the chanting to ease into meditation. Then I'll provide you some guidance during the meditation. Then there'll be a period of time where we'll just be meditating together. And then we'll come out of the meditation with some chanting. So if you would like to make yourself comfortable, either on the floor or in a chair, if you have your legs just lightly crossed this will help to allow the circulation to flow in the lower legs the Buddha put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together and he put this into his lap. If that's comfortable for you, you could use that. But remember, it's not about everybody doing it exactly the same way. There's other options here as well. So some people like to put their palms on their thighs or their knees, their palms up or resting in their laps whatever is comfortable for you. The upper body, if you have this erect, this keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation so that you can actively train the mind. And then as we chant, After the chanting, we'll just move into meditation with our eyes closed and breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. So, if you'd like to join for chanting, and then we'll move into meditation from
2: there.
3: ma ka so, I'm going to go some man sam put asa. Nap more asa pako do sama samputa sah, iti pisau emak wa. Arahan sama samuto, wicara rangsamu. Saka rokawi anu sa damasati
2: Okay, with the lower body and hands and arms comfortable and the upper body erect just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just looking to establish the breath. A nice, natural, steady, consistent breath, not forced or controlled, just a gradual inhale through the nose, experiencing the full breath, and then whenever you're ready, exhale out through the nose. Breathing
4: in, and out. Breathing in, and out. Your breath
1: may not match up with the guidance that I'm providing, and that's okay. This is your practice. I'm just here for guidance. You can use this voice as a reminder that whenever you get to the next inhale, breathing gradually through the nose, establishing a nice, natural, steady,
2: consistent breath. And then, when you're ready, exhale out through the nose.
4: Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. And out
1: Once the breath is well established, start fixating the mind on the breath, either the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving over the
2: skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath,
4: the present moment. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. out.
2: With the mind fixated on
1: the breath, whenever you notice that it moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to observe the thought,
2: label it, judge it, analyze it or
1: even try to figure out where it's coming from. Whenever you notice that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment.
4: Breathing in... And out, breathing in, and out.
2: I'm going to be quiet
1: now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath, cutting off and letting go any the mind moves off the breath.
2: You have nowhere to go, there's nothing to do, no one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath,
4: breathing in. in oh
3: I'm No, I'm hack NAMAMI wato. Sawaka sank. Ara to some samputasa Napmurasa Pacoato Ara to some samputasa na mo ra sa bha ka wa to a ra to sum ma sa pu Sama-sama itu, wicara tentang anu teropurisa. Dhamma sati sata Okay,
2: if you guys would like to
1: slowly make your way out of meditation once again good morning to all of you guys those of you here at the temple as well as those of you online that are joining us welcome to everyone today's class we're going to be diving into the eightfold path this is the core central teaching of the buddha and is where you're going to be able to learn how to move the mind to the enlightened mental state everything else that you learn on the path to enlightenment is going to connect into this teaching in one way or another so when we talk about developing a life practice this is that life practice or if we talk about the path to enlightenment this is the path to enlightenment so an individual who's interested in moving the mind to that peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy eliminating all anger sadness frustration irritation annoyance guilt shame fear boredom loneliness shyness resentment jealousy even the slightest displeasure or any of those other benefits of enlightenment that we talked about yesterday where the mind is concentrated and focus having clarity of mind deep memory where your personal professional relationships are blossoming you're not even in a bad mood this is the teaching that somebody would need to learn in order to really make their way towards this enlightened mental state so an individual would need to learn this inside and out backwards and forwards you're going to most likely need to visit this multiple times in your journey to enlightenment you can't just learn it once and then boom, you know, you get it right away. So you're going to need to learn it and then learn it again and learn it again, revisit it, refresh your mind about it. So this may be the first time that you've learned it with the original words of the Buddha. I'm going to walk you through understanding the teachings and the path using the original words of the Buddha. And as we talked yesterday, it's important that you don't believe anything that I share, whether it's the words of the Buddha or anything that I share, you don't believe these teachings. You're not believing, believing, believing. Believing, hoping something good happens when you die, because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. So, as I teach you today, it's important to investigate that, examine that, learn it, and then reflect on it to independently verify it, and then practice it. And I'm going to show you how to do that as you progress in today's class. I'm going to teach something to you, then I'm going to show you how to reflect on it, then I'm going to show you how to practice it so that you can come to the truth and get to wisdom and see the truth about these natural laws of existence. And then as we go, remember you guys are welcome to ask questions we're going to pause at different times those of you guys here at the temple if we could use the microphones in the white bowl that way the folks online will be able to hear us and then those of you guys that are online you can ask questions through facebook youtube or zoom or in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly So the Eightfold Path is organized into these eight factors that you're learning each one of these factors and then you're dialing them in closer and closer. It's organized into three categories or three sections, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. The way that I think about the Eightfold Path is I think about them as eight individual dials. If you had a speaker system and you were trying to get a better and better quality sound out of these speakers, you would dial these eight dials in closer and closer kind of reflect finding it as you go to get a better and better quality sound out of these speakers. And the same thing is true is these are like eight dials to the mind that you're dialing these in closer and closer to be able to get a better and better quality mind so that you can optimize the performance of the mind. This is what's going to help you eliminate those pollutions that we talked about yesterday, that this path is going to provide you the guidance that you need to actually eliminate all those pollutions. And as you're lifting those pollutions out of the mind, this is where you see the focus concentration clarity deep memory and those discontent feelings diminish and then ultimately are eliminated from the mind because the mind is no longer polluted by those 10 fetters that we talked about so i'm going to walk you through each one of these steps helping you to understand and we're going to take a break as we get going as well because this is what we'll be spending the entire morning discussing So the first thing is right view. This is the very first step of the Eightfold Path. And here's the words of the Buddha on right view. He says, in what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So what he's doing here is he's pointing to one of his other teachings. He's pointing to what's called the Four Noble Truths, because the Eightfold Path is this core central teaching that everything else integrates into. And there's other places in his teachings where he teaches what the Four Noble Truths are. From this line below, this is just the top section of the Four Noble Truths, where I'm helping you to build confidence that yes, what he's talking about with Right View is the Four Noble Truths. So you can see that connection very clearly. And then now I'm gonna teach you the Four Noble Truths. But in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, you need to understand the three universal truths. We call them truths, the three universal truths and the four noble truths, because the Buddha knew that they were true. I know that they're true. Other people know that they're true. But in order for you to get the benefit, you're going to need to know that they're true. So, this is why you're learning, you're reflecting, independently verifying, you're practicing. So, these are like building blocks to be able to help you understand the four noble truths. So, I'm going to walk you through the three universal truths first, helping you to understand those through learning, reflecting, and practicing. And then, I will explain to you the Four Noble Truths to be able to help you understand what's called the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination, and the path forward. With the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha describes it as a breakthrough, because once you understand the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause of that problem, the elimination of it, and the path forward, you can have this real breakthrough, because you'll finally understand what's causing your anger, what's causing your sadness, what's causing your frustration, the guilt, the shame, the fear, all those discontent feelings. The Four Noble Truths is gonna explain that to you and why that's occurring, and then it's gonna give you a solution of how to fix it, but you need to know these three universal truths to be able to understand the Four Noble Truths. So I'm gonna walk you through this. So the first universal truth is called the universal truth of impermanence. This is where you learning things are constantly changing. The Buddha talks about conditioned objects. Conditioned objects, they arise, they change, and then they fade away. This is called a conditioned object. It's temporary. It's impermanent. And then there's something called an unconditioned object, an unconditioned object. It doesn't arise. It doesn't change and it doesn't fade away. So pretty much everything around the world, or I should say everything in the world around you, it is impermanent. It's temporary. There's only two things that are actually permanent. It's enlightenment in the natural laws of existence these are the two things that are permanent and i can explain to you why that is if you like but let's first focus on this universal truth of impermanence this is where you're learning things are constantly changing there isn't a permanent fixed state So once you learn this, which only takes about a minute or two for you to understand, like, okay, yeah, the Buddha is saying things around you are impermanent, they're temporary. Well, that's what the Buddha is sharing is this universal truth. But now you're not believing it. You just learned it. Now what you start doing is you start reflecting on it to try to determine if it's true or not so you can get to wisdom. The way that you do that is you look around the world and you try to disprove it. If you can look around the world and find something that is permanent, then you've disproven this. So, what I suggest that you do is you start with something that you're very familiar with, like something like the physical body. You're familiar with this physical body. You ask yourself, is this body permanent? Or is it impermanent? Because if it's permanent, it's been exactly the same your whole life and it's never changed. If it's impermanent, that means this physical body is constantly changing. So what would you say? Is this body permanent or is it impermanent? It's impermanent, right? So we started out in our mom's womb. We've been growing and growing and growing. We got teeth that came in. Those teeth fell out. The new teeth came in. Then we get cavities. Our hair grows. It gets gray. We lose our hair. Our skin complexion changes. Uh, We get wrinkles. We get fat. We get skinny. We get all these different things that are occurring. All these changes. We grow taller, right? All these different things are changing with the physical body. What about your relationships? Are your relationships permanent or impermanent? If your relationships are permanent, that means you've had exactly the same people in your life your entire life. If they're impermanent, that means you have people coming and going in and out of your life, throughout your life. So are your relationships permanent or impermanent? Are you guys saying impermanent? Is that what I'm hearing? Okay, yeah, all right, they're impermanent, right? Your relationships are impermanent. Okay, what about your bank account? Is your bank account permanent or impermanent? What would you say? It, it, it's impermanent, right? So your bank account your bank account goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. For some people, it goes down, 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 right? For some people, it goes up, 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 right? This is all impermanence; It's constantly changing. What about the weather? Is it permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent, right? It's sunny some days, it's raining. Depending on where you live, it might snow, sleet, might be an earthquake, a tsunami, blizzards, snowstorms, all these different things, tornadoes, hurricanes, typhoons, all these different things. This is all impermanence. What about this carpet on the floor in front of me? Is this permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent right before this, it was something else, and people put it together. And now that they put it together, it's getting stains. The fabric is kind of wearing off every once in a while. Eventually, it won't be a carpet anymore, it'll deteriorate. So, you can look around the world around you and see this impermanence. When you're walking down the street on the sidewalk, you can see a crack in the sidewalk. You can see that's impermanence, or the height of the sidewalk might change, or the texture, the color, the shape of the sidewalk. You can look at the wall of the temple, and you can see holes and discoloration where at one point it might've looked one particular way. Now it looks a different way. We had a certain number of students in our class yesterday. Now we have a different number or different people have shown up. This is all in right? People are going to be coming and going out of this class all throughout the week. This is impermanence, right? So this is important for you to go around the world and see for yourself, discover the wisdom look for things that are permanent or if you can't find anything that's permanent then you'll know that this is impermanence this is the universal truth of impermanence like just sitting here there's a certain tone in the room but now you hear the birds chirping or you might hear a motorcycle go by or you might hear a dog bark at some point even sounds are impermanent so all these things around you are impermanent so this is one of the building blocks that you need to know in order to understand the four noble truths and understand this world around you these universal universal truths, these natural laws of existence. Now, the second universal truth is called discontentedness. If you've studied the teachings of the Buddha other places, you might have heard the word suffering used here. I don't use that word suffering, and I'll explain to you why in a moment, but let me explain to you what this universal truth is. In the original source teachings of the Buddha, he used the word dukkha. This word dukkha is often translated to suffering, but I translate it to discontentedness. Either discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. This is what's called a conditioned feeling. Because when the Buddha describes what dukkha is, he describes it as three feelings. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. You've experienced these, you know what these feelings feel like, but then there's also painful feelings. Things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and others. These are very painful for you to experience. And then there's neither painful nor pleasant. I put in here boredom and loneliness, but some people say that's quite painful for them. So you could put that into the painful category if you like. But shyness is a great example of neither painful nor pleasant. It's not painful, it's not pleasant. Or say you were on public transportation and somebody came and sat really close to you that you didn't know, and maybe your body is touching their body. Yeah, you might say it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant. The mind's kind of uncomfortable or dissatisfied. So what the Buddha is doing here is he's describing the unenlightened mind and what the unenlightened mind experiences is these three feelings, pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant. And these are conditioned feelings that the mind is going to experience these feelings based on some condition. So for example, if it's sunny outside, you might get happy based on the condition of the sun. But then you go take a shower, and you come back, and now it's raining. So now that the condition has changed, now your mind experiences frustration, maybe, or agitation. These are conditioned feelings. They arise, they change, and they fade away. That happiness that you experience, that excitement, it's temporary, because it's conditional. It's based on some condition. And that condition of the sun is impermanent, so therefore, Your feeling of happiness or excitement is also impermanent. So while an unenlightened being's mind is going up and down and up and down, up and down based on these conditional feelings, by the time you get to enlightenment, you're beyond all of that. You're experiencing unconditioned mental qualities of peace, calm, serenity, contentedness with joy. You're just always happy. We could call it unconditional happiness versus conditional happiness. With conditional happiness, this condition has to be met, 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 met, and then you'll be happy. If your bank account is this, if your boss does this, if the weather is this, if your friends and family do this, then you'll be happy, right? But then when all those things start changing, you'll be maybe frustrated or irritated or annoyed. This is the mind experiencing discontentedness. Now, as I mentioned, some people refer to this as suffering. With the word suffering, I think that describes the painful feelings really well, like the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the guilt, the shame, all those kinds of things. But when you're happy, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if you're excited that your mom's coming to visit you, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in that situation. Or if that person you don't know comes and sits really close to you on public transportation and your body's touching their body, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in that situation. Your mind's discontent, experiencing discontentedness, or maybe it's discontented, right? So the mind is discontent. This is a word that can explain the full spectrum of what the Buddha is describing here as dukkha, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. So if you use the word suffering, it's only explaining the painful feelings, which means that's 33% of what the Buddha is describing. So you would be missing 66% of his teachings on this important topic. And if you're missing 66% of a teacher's teachings, how would you ever be able to get to the ultimate goal of enlightenment? So if you use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, this will help bring your mind to a better understanding. understanding of what the Buddha is teaching here. And remember, the enlightened mind is beyond all of these conditional feelings. In the unenlightened state, it can only be happy if these conditions are met, which means the more things that the mind wants, it's going to hinder it from experiencing happiness. There's only going to be limited situations where the mind can be happy. But by the time you get to enlightenment, the mind is just always joyful, always happy, unconditioned joy, unconditioned happiness, because it's beyond these conditional feelings. Feelings. The mind is forming its inner feelings based on some condition, which you're going to understand more when we get to the Four Noble Truths. Now there's this Third universal truth. The third universal truth is called the universal truth of non-self. This is the solution to what we were talking about yesterday with personal existence view. Personal existence view is one of the fetters, one of the taints, one of the pollutions of mind, one of those defilements. What personal existence view is, is where the mind is clinging to this body and or this mind thinking that this is who you are. There's a certain self-image that the mind is clinging to, a certain self-identity that it's clinging to, thinking that this is you. And now when you have agreeable contact related to that, the mind will experience pleasant feelings. But when you have disagreeable contact related to the self-image or self-identity, the mind will experience those painful feelings. So some of the examples that I gave yesterday is like, say somebody compliments you and says, wow, you're so beautiful or you're so handsome. That color of shirt you're wearing really brings out the color of your eyes. Wow, you're so beautiful. You're so handsome. Wow, you might get all these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings based on the condition of somebody complimenting you. But then it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading and disparaging. You can't control what other people say or what other people do. So someone's probably going to say something degrading about this physical appearance at some point. And if you think that this physical appearance is you, this self-image is you, now your mind's going to be sad or angry or frustrated and that situation. So your mind's going to be shaken up by this. Or say that you spill some spaghetti sauce or chocolate ice cream when you're clothing. Now you're not being perceived in the world the way you want to be perceived, so now the mind can be shaken up by that, feeling embarrassed in a social situation. Or if you look in the mirror and you see a wrinkle or a gray hair or a mole or a pimple, or uh, you're starting to lose your hair, or you get a little bit of fat here and there. If you think that this body is you, Now, when you see something that's disagreeable to you, your mind's gonna end up in those painful feelings. And then the same thing is happening with the self-identity. The mind is oftentimes clinging to a certain culture, certain ethnicity, certain nationality, maybe your sexual orientation, maybe your job or your occupation, thinking that this is who you are. Maybe a role, like I am a boyfriend, I am a girlfriend, I am a husband, I am a wife. And now when your mind's clinging to these things, If you experience agreeable contact, you'll get pleasant feelings. If you have disagreeable contact, you'll experience the painful feelings. So let's just say somebody is commenting about your nationality or your job or your occupation in a very positive way. You might get all these pleasant feelings because they're talking about you. They're talking about that, you know, a Spaniard or a Brit or an Aussie or an American or a Chinese or Japanese or a Swedish person, if they're talking about this nationality and your mind identifies with that's who you are as a person, now you'll get these pleasant feelings because they're talking about you. But remember you can't control what people say or what they do. So now you might be at a restaurant and two tables over they're degrading or disparaging people from your country. And now if you identify with that's who you are as a person, your mind will be shaken up by that. You'll perhaps be angry or frustrated or agitated or annoyed about this situation. And then your speech and your actions might get to the point where you become hostile and aggressive towards these people potentially. So as long as the mind's clinging to any identity like your nationality, or your culture, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, or even like your job or occupation. If you identify with, I am a police officer, or I am a lawyer, or I am a food server, or, I'm a taxi driver, or I am a Buddhist teacher, or I am a singer, or I am a performer, when you're doing those things, you'll be happy. You'll be excited. But then when you lose your job or you stop doing those things, you'll be frustrated or agitated. You'll feel uncomfortable. Or if you've been in a relationship with like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or husband or wife, when you guys separated, you might've felt like you wanted to hurry up and get right back into another relationship because the mind identified with, I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend or I am a husband or I am a wife. And now when you're single, the mind doesn't identify with that. And you feel like a part of you is missing. A part of you is gone. And the mind thinks the way to solve the problem is to get right back into another relationship and kind of reassume that identity because it's uncomfortable. It's discontent when all these things start changing. So as long as the mind's clinging to any kind of self-identity, you'll feel shaken up in certain situations. Maybe you retire from a job and you feel kind of lost and confused, like a part of you is missing. Some people come to Thailand trying to find themselves. They're trying to find their true self. Someone might say, I don't even know who I am anymore. I need to go on this journey to find myself. Well, you can't find yourself because what the universal truth of non-self is sharing with you is that there is no self. Someone might find a new hobby, new job, new friends, new activities, but none of those things are you. It's not who you are. So as long as the mind is having this misunderstanding or this confusion or this misperception that this body or this mind is you, then in certain situations, your mind's going to be shaken up by the various things that are occurring. And this is because of the pollution of personal existence view. But the universal truth of non-self, the Buddha is helping you to see that, yeah, you're not this body. You're not this mind. So that way, as you train your mind to do what we call realize non-self, where your mind fully realizes that this is not you, it's not who you are, then you'll be liberated from those feelings that are occurring based on the pollution of personal existence view. So the universal truth of non-self is a way to teach you to not cling to this body or this mind is who you are. There is a body, there is a mind, and it has come together for this existence. And we refer to this as a person. But what the Buddha is saying in the universal truth of non self is this is not you. It's not who you are. Okay? So the way that you can independently verify this, this universal truth of non self, is that you can look at how you viewed yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, early adulthood, and then now. How you viewed yourself, has it been exactly the same or has it been constantly changing throughout your life? You'd probably say it's been constantly changing like your character, your personality, you have viewed yourself differently in these different stages of life from childhood to teenage years, early adulthood and now. Here's another way. If your arm was chopped off, like say you had an amputation or something like this and you only had one hand or one arm, are you less of a person? Are you less of a person because you only have one hand and one arm? I see some of you guys shaking your head. No, no. So intellectually, you know that this body is not you, right? Because if I ask you the question, if you're less of a person, when you have one hand and one arm and this body is you, you would say, yes, I'm less of a person but you're not less of a person. You just have less use of a hand and an arm. So intellectually, you understand that this body is not you, but the mind is still confused and it's having the misunderstanding that this body is you. So in the situation where somebody compliments you about the physical body or says something degrading or disparaging, with this confusion, the mind gets frustrated and agitated and annoyed in these various situations. Here's a third way that you can independently verify it. Point to yourself. Where are you?
2: Can you point to yourself? Okay, Erasmus is pointing here.
1: Okay, you're pointing here. Yeah, this is kind of common. People will either point here or they'll point here. So, what are you pointing at when you point here?
2: What's true reality? What are you pointing at? What are, what are you pointing to? You're
1: pointing to a shirt. Right? You look at it very clearly, right? Like, what's true reality? What are you actually pointing to? You're pointing to a shirt, right? So let me take off this shirt, figuratively. And is this you? If this shirt that's hanging up here, is this who you are?
2: Are you that shirt? No. Okay. So let's throw away the shirt. Someone might ask, "Where are you?" So I might point again.
1: What are you pointing to? To skin. Right, there's skin there. Okay, so if we took off the skin and we held up the skin, is that you? Is that who you are? The skin? Are you the skin? No, you're not the skin, right? Okay, so let's throw away the skin. Now, someone might say, "Where are you?" And then you point again, and now you've got muscle tissue, you've got bones, you've got organs and fluid, you got all these different things in there. Is any of that stuff you? Is that who you
2: are? as a person, is
1: that you? No, none of that's you. But the mind is confused where it thinks that this is you. And that's the challenge that the unenlighted mind has, that it's clinging to this body, thinking that this is you. But if you look at this and dissect it, you can see that it's not you. It's not who you are. And you need to gradually train your mind to do what's called realize non-self. And that's what I taught on Sunday in our group learning program. For those of you guys that were here, I taught you how to realize non-self. And that takes Time. There's certain training that you need to employ to be able to get to that point. You can't just learn it just here and then ultimately, you know, snap your fingers and realize non self. If you were at a restaurant and there was someone two tables over commenting about your Nationality, your culture, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, maybe your job or occupation, you'd probably get angry or frustrated right now. But through gradual training, you can realize non self and get to the point where you just understand that, okay, that's that person's opinion. And you're not going to allow your mind to form inner feelings based on what other people are saying, right? Because that's just their view, their opinion. They're not really talking about you because there is no you here, right? These are just things that we have, there's this body, there's this mind, but it's not you. Okay, so this is how you independently verify the universal truth of non-self. I forgot to mention to you how to independently verify the second one. The universal truth of discontentedness, the way that you independently verify this, is you understand these three types of feelings, of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. And if you understand that the Buddha is describing the unenlightened mind here, well, you know that your mind is unenlightened, so you ask yourself, is this describing what you experience? Do you experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant? Is there any feeling that you experience that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? This is how you independently verify that, yes, this is universal truth. He's universally describing what the unenlighted mind experiences. So this is the way that you can learn these three, and then you can independently verify them. So now what I'm going to do before I move on is open up to any questions that you guys have. Whether you're here at the temple or you're online, you can ask any questions that you like about any of these three universal truths. Yes, ma'am. If you wouldn't mind passing the mics around.
5: So I just have a question about the suffering.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. The the neither painful nor pleasant?
1: No, the mind's still experiencing what somebody might refer to as suffering. So the word suffering, in my opinion describes painful feelings because when you're sad or frustrated or agitated guilty feeling shameful fearful you might say you're suffering in those situations if there's stress or anxiety but if you're experiencing pleasant feelings or the neither painful nor pleasant feelings like shyness or displeasure, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in those situations. So, a better word that represents all three feelings and fully describes the Analyta mind is either discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. This describes the full spectrum of what the Buddha was describing. So, one of the challenges that we have with the teachings that have been shared in the world is that people are translating them in a way that doesn't accurately represent what the Buddha taught. So the vast majority of the world, when they're translating from Pali to English, are using suffering. But there are a few people who use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, because we understand it more fully represents what the Buddha was describing. Because if you only understood the suffering, and that's what you're trying to get rid of, which is the painful feelings, then you miss the understanding that the pleasant feelings are part of the problem, the conditioned pleasant feelings. Because if you allow your mind to get a conditioned pleasant feeling, it's only a matter of time before it gets the painful feeling. So I'll give you an example. Like say you get a brand new job and say you really chased after this job. You really wanted this job really a lot. It has the great salary, great office location, wonderful coworkers, great mission for the company. And now you're so excited. You got this job. You're so happy. Oh, I got the perfect job. Well, now five years later, maybe the company goes out of business and now you're sad. Now you're frustrated. So if you don't identify with that, this pleasant feeling that you acquired five years earlier is the reason why your mind's in the painful feelings, then you wouldn't be able to solve the problem because the way that you solve the problem, which I'm going to explain to you here in a moment, is you ensure that the mind doesn't get those conditioned pleasant feelings. Because if you allow the mind to get those conditioned pleasant feelings, then when that condition is no longer there, it's going to end up in the painful feelings. So when you get the job, it's like, oh, perfect. I got the job. Yes. Excellent. Let's go do this job. But then you already know it's impermanent. This job is impermanent. It's going to end at some point. But if you get so excited about it, then it's going to end up in the painful feelings at some point. So by understanding discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, you can understand That part of the problem is those conditioned, pleasant feelings, because if you allow the mind to do that in any number of situations, it's going to ultimately end up in the painful feelings. So you can't just eliminate the conditioned, painful feelings. You need to eliminate the conditioned, pleasant feelings and the neither painful nor pleasant, because when you clear all that conditional experiences out of the way, then you can get to the unconditioned joy and the unconditioned happiness where your mind doesn't need any condition to be met in order to be joyful. So if you get that job, wonderful, great, I got the job. But if you don't get the job, hey, that's fine too. There's other jobs as well. I'll find another job. No big deal. Right? So that's what you would like to get to,
2: where your mind can just always be happy. Yes. That's
1: what we're going to talk about here in a moment. Yep. not sure why that mic was cutting out. It it cut out on you.
2: Okay. Let
1: me see if we have any
2: other questions coming in here, maybe on... Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom.
1: Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next part that you guys are going to need in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, which is the definition of craving, desire, attachment. We also refer to this as wants, expectations holding, grasping, or clinging. We use these words in a unique way within Buddhist teachings. It's describing a certain aspect of the mind. It's where the mind is longing and yearning, chasing after the objects of its affection, thinking the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. The mind is longing, it's yearning, it's pulling towards something. If you've ever been in the mall and you were walking through the mall and you saw a brand new pair of shoes, you're like, ah, a new pair of shoes. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, I just got to have those shoes. Or maybe it was a purse or jewelry or a new phone or a new computer or a new video game or a new car or something like this. The mind's longing, yearning. This is the craving desire attachment. You guys know what I'm talking about? Experience this. Right. Okay. This is the craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectation. The mind is thinking something external is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So it chases it and chases it and chases it. It thinks that this next new shiny object around the corner is going to provide some lasting satisfaction. It's going to make you feel whole. It's going to make you feel complete. So the mind chases after it. So these are the building blocks that you need in order to now understand the four noble truths. This is where you can have a breakthrough to understanding what's causing these discontent feelings. So here I'm going to do the same thing where I will teach you to help you learn. I will help you reflect, and then I will teach you how to practice. So the first noble truth is explaining the problem in the unenlightened mind. It's explaining that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. Those are those conditioned feelings that the mind's going up and down, up and down the pleasant feelings. And then a period of time, you're going to go to those painful feelings and then neither painful nor pleasant. You might have some peacefulness here and there, but ultimately the mind's going to end up agitated or annoyed about something. This is the problem. The first noble truth is explaining the problem that unenlightened beings experience. The enlightened mind is beyond this. It's just always joyful. There's nothing that can happen that would shake up the enlightened mind. It would just always be joyful at all times. Then the second noble truth is explaining the cause of this problem. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent, when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to explain that a couple of times, and I'm going to give you some examples. So this discontentedness, those conditioned feelings, pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant, it's caused by the craving, desire, attachment, the longing, the yearning, the chasing after the objects of your affection. The mind wants things to be permanent, but yet everything around you is impermanent. So the mind's chasing, chasing, chasing. If it gets what it wants, it gets pleasant feelings. If it doesn't get what it wants, it gets those painful feelings. So let me give you an example. Say there's a boyfriend or girlfriend that you see. It's like some person. It's like, oh, wow, they're... They're handsome or they're beautiful or they're intelligent or they're financially secure or they're funny, they're humorous, whatever it is, all these qualities that you see, you're like, I just got to have that. And you might chase after that. And you really want that boyfriend or girlfriend. And when you guys first get together, there's all these pleasant feelings. Right? Oh, it's wonderful. You're just getting to know each other. You're having conversations. You're going out to the dinner. You're going to the movies. Maybe you're going to the park. You're having great conversations. Maybe you're having intimate contact. Oh, it couldn't be better. All these pleasant thoughts, all these pleasant feelings. Right. Well, now, over time, this relationship deteriorates for one reason or another. And now you guys separate. The minds experience some impermanence. And now. It's experiencing anger, frustration, agitation. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're bored. It's not the person that's causing this. It's the mind's craving. It's the desire. It's the longing. It's the yearning. Wanting this relationship to be permanent. The mind's craving for that to be permanent. But when the unenlightened mind is confronted with impermanence, it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. It doesn't understand the universal truths or these natural laws. It doesn't understand it. So because of its own craving and longing and yearning, when it gets what it wants, it gets pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get what it wants, this relationship is over. Now the mind ends up in the painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration. So you can see this with the relationship and you can see this with Other parts of your relationships too. Say like somebody dies, like grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or brothers and sisters. If you grieved at the funeral or when you found out that they had died, it's not the love that's causing that. Love is a genuine interest in seeing this being be well. What caused you to grieve during that time frame is that the mind was craving for grandma or grandpa to be permanent or mom or dad or brothers and sisters. This being is impermanent but the mind was craving for them to be permanent. If they're alive, you have pleasant feelings. If they die, this is impermanence. So the mind doesn't understand this impermanence, so it struggles. It has this grief or this despair, this misery at the time of death or when you're confronted with this or if your parents get sick or if your brothers and sisters or your life partner gets sick, you might experience sadness or frustration. Same thing occurs if you go to a wedding. You or people around you they might grieve. They might be sad at a wedding because this is impermanence. Somebody's going off into the world with another partner, mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, brothers and sisters are confronted with this impermanence that somebody's going off into the world. They realize, oh my goodness, they're not with me permanently. They're not going to be with me permanently. And someone might grieve at a wedding because they're craving that person to be permanent. Or if you've ever gone to college and your parents grieved when you went away to university or college, or you grieved when you sent your kids away to university or college. You're not a bad person when these things are occurring. It's just that the mind is untrained. It doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It has this craving, this desire, this longing, this yearning, wanting things to be permanent. Here's another example that's not a relationship. Say that you buy a brand new car. In this brand new car, when you buy it, it's like the perfect car you've always wanted this car you saved up money to buy it you got this shiny red sports car maybe with a convertible i don't know whatever your favorite car might be imagine that car right and now you get all these pleasant feelings from purchasing this car maybe you're driving through the neighborhood people see you you look so successful wow look at them they got a new car wow but now you park it at a store you go inside and you come out and there's a scratch on the car oh my goodness you might be so frustrated or agitated who scratched my car right well it's not the scratch that's causing you to be frustrated it's not even the person who scratched your car that's not what's causing you to be frustrated what's causing the frustration is the mind's craving permanence It's wanting this car to look permanently beautiful but this car is impermanent the paint's going to fade it's going to chip the Tires are going to need to be changed. The upholstery is going to fade away. As long as your mind's craving permanence, your mind will be shaken up in that situation. And what the unenlightened mind does when it experiences these painful feelings is it falsely attributes those painful feelings to somebody else. And now, what the unenlightened mind will do when it misunderstands the problem is it will push people away. And you might have done this in your life. You might have pushed people away or you pushed the situation away. This is called aversion. The mind thinks that that's the problem something external and you think the way to solve the problem is to push this person away but that doesn't solve the problem because it's only a matter of time before you get agitated or irritated or annoyed about something else if that was the problem when you push those people away then you would be peaceful everything would be solved in your life but that's not the problem that's why you keep getting agitated or irritated over and over another thing that can happen when you misunderstand the problem in the cause of that problem is you might be bitter and harsh and hostile towards people. Through your intentions, your speech, and your actions, you might be bitter and harsh, hostile, resentful towards this person. And now you damage the relationship. Or the third thing you might do when you misunderstand the cause of the problem is you might try to put your expectations on somebody and try to control somebody to do things your way. Because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand that it's craving, it's having these desires. And what the mind's trying to do is it's trying to force these people to do things your way. And the mind thinks, if I can just get things done my way, everything will be perfect. I'll get those pleasant feelings and everything will be great. But as long as you're pushing people away, you are being bitter and harsh and hostile to people, and you're putting your expectations on people, you're not actually understanding the real problem, which is within your own mind. And putting expectations on people is not going to work because there's 8 billion people in the world, and you can't train 8 billion people to do things your way. It's just not possible. So as long as the mind is misunderstanding what the problem is, and you keep pushing people away, being bitter and harsh and hostile, and you put your expectations on people, the number of people you can spend time with becomes fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer. Because the mind has all these expectations. It has all these wants. They keep growing and growing and growing as you age. And now it's only a matter of time before somebody does something you disagree with and something that you don't want to occur. And now when somebody does something that you have a craving for, when they do something the opposite way, then you're going to get these painful feelings. You'll push them away or you'll push the situation away. You'll be bitter and harsh and hostile. They might choose to leave out of your life or you'll put your expectations on people. and then they'll choose to leave out of your life for that reason. They feel pressured and they feel like you're controlling them. So again, you're not a bad person, right? You haven't necessarily done anything wrong. It's just that the mind lacks wisdom to understand the natural laws of existence. It doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand the second noble truth. So now that you understand a bit about this cause of the problem of why these disconsent feelings are occurring, Now that's the learning part. Now let's do the reflection part where you can independently verify this for yourself. Look at a situation where you've recently been irritated, annoyed, frustrated, agitated, or any other discontent feeling. It might've been this morning, it might've been yesterday, it might've been last week where you were experiencing a certain discontent feeling. Now, at that time, you might have been trying to blame somebody else. That's what the enlightened mind does, right? It can't be you, right? It has to be somebody else, right? That the mind's ego is going to try to blame somebody else for the problems that you're experiencing. But now with these fresh eyes, with this new wisdom that I just shared with you, look at that same situation, whether it was this morning, yesterday, last week, where you were agitated or annoyed or other discontent feeling. What was it that your mind wanted? There was something your mind wanted that it didn't get. And when you didn't get that thing, then your mind became agitated or annoyed or angry or sad or some other discontent feeling. So you can look at this and you can independently verify it for yourself. But if you're having trouble seeing that, let me know. When we get to the question period, Let me know what your questions are because I can help you see it. Sometimes students ask me, David, you know, I I went to work the other day and I came home and my wife had this craft project all over the house and I instantly got frustrated. Because what I'm sharing with you guys is that your mind's causing your own discontent feelings. That's what I'm explaining to you. And this person came home and they're like, how did I cause my own discontent feelings in this situation? I got frustrated, I got irritated, I wasn't even there. My wife had everything all over the house. It was a wreck when I came home. She had her craft project everywhere. How did I cause my own frustration? I was like, well, when you left for work, the house looked one way and your mind was craving for it to look that way permanently. And then when you came home, it looked different than it did when you went to work. This is just impermanence. Your house can't permanently look that way. And when you came home and you saw this impermanence, your mind didn't like it. You were craving permanence. And just like your house can't permanently look one particular way, this craft project that your wife has all over the house, that's not permanent either. She's going to put it away at some point. And maybe you even help her to put it away. So sometimes people will struggle and they're, they're challenged to be able to see how their mind is causing their own discontent feelings. Because this is what you're going to need to do in order to get to enlightenment is be able to see your own cravings, desires, attachments. If you continue to go around the world and you think that the problem is external, you'll keep pushing people away being bitter and harsh and hostile and putting your expectations on people and you won't be able to live harmoniously with all beings in the world it's only a matter of time before your mind's struggling because you're going to be wanting something it's not going to be occurring your way and you'll get frustrated right so if you understand what the problem is which is discontentedness and you understand the cause of that problem is craving desire attachment now instead of looking for someone to blame for your discontent feelings you can start practicing where you look inward and you can start trying to figure out what is it that I'm craving? So, where in the past, where we're so frustrated and we're trying to convince somebody else how they made us angry, instead, you can save yourself a whole lot of problems. You can sit down and look inward and say, What is it that I want here that I'm not getting? Right? So every single time your mind has ever been angry, it's ever been frustrated, it's ever been agitated, annoyed, any of those discontent feelings, the mind was causing it itself. At the time, you might have firmly believed that other people are causing you to be angry, but your mind has been causing all of this itself. This is part of the wisdom that you need to awaken to and you need to be able to see it yourself so that now and in, along into the future, you can start looking inward and start reflecting and start figuring out, what am I craving in this situation? Because if you can learn and figure out what you're craving, then you can actually get to liberation because you can train your mind through the third noble truth, which the Buddha is explaining, the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. If you can eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments, then you can get to liberation because there isn't anything that you're craving. You're not longing. You're not yearning. You're not chasing after things. Because in that example, like you see that brand new pair of shoes at the mall and you really want to get that new pair of shoes and you go into the store and they're like, oh, sorry, we don't have your size. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be annoyed. But if you're like, all right, no big deal. You know, maybe I'll go to another store, right? Or you look somewhere else or maybe you get a different pair. And we're like, well, what size do you do you have, or, or what other shoes do you have that are in my size? Do you have other shoes that are in my size? Right, you can look at other options. And enlightened being is going to be a problem solver, they're going to be able to solve problems very easily. So, if you can eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments from the mind, you can liberate the mind from these discontent feelings, and you can independently verify the third noble truth because in that situation where you are in a relationship with somebody and you ended the relationship or they ended the relationship and you were frustrated or agitated or annoyed, you experienced those discontent feelings until you got to the point where you were like, you know what? If he wants to be with another person, so be it. I don't care. Let him go. Or her, right? If she would like to be with someone else, okay, so be it. Let them be. And you let them go out of your mind. And then you got to peace and you're like, all right, I'm fine with this. No big deal. Let them go. So when you train your mind to let go of these cravings, desires, attachments where you're not holding on, you can get to liberation. So what's helping you to do that is in the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path. The eightfold path is the complete perfect solution. The Buddha is helping you to understand the training that you need to employ in your life to train your mind to let go. And some of the tools that the Buddha teaches, you've already been exposed to the breathing mindfulness meditation is training your mind to let go that breathing mindfulness meditation that you learned a little bit yesterday. And then you did today, and you're going to really learn this afternoon. When I do the afternoon session, I'm going to walk you through and teach it to you in detail. It's training your mind to let go. The goal of that meditation isn't to eliminate your thoughts. It's to train your mind to let go. And then there's a practice of generosity that trains the mind to let go as well, which you're going to learn all these things as part of this course. So the Eightfold Path, as you go today, you'll see that it is the perfect plan that trains your mind to let go and eliminate these cravings, desires, attachments. Then you can get to liberation. You can get to the point where the mind no longer experiences discontent feelings because you've eliminated all the cravings that are in your mind. And now you can pursue things as a goal, as an objective or an interest. What the unenlightened Mind knows and all that really kind of understands is to chase and pursue things out of craving, desire, attachments. That's kind of what we know as we've been aging. But also if you're on this other side of the spectrum where you just didn't care about anything and you didn't pursue career goals or objectives, you wouldn't be peaceful and joyful there either. So if you chased after a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you chased after more money, or you chased after a career or a bigger car or a bigger house, you're ultimately going to end up in discontentedness. But if you never attended to the things that you needed in life, you wouldn't be peaceful and joyful there either because you wouldn't have the basic necessities to sustain your life. So what the Eightfold Path is teaching you is to bring the mind to the middle, where you can pursue things as a goal, as an objective or an interest and gradually work towards those things, realizing that there are certain needs that you have in life, but the mind's going to have all these wants. It's going to want to chase all these wants. And as long as you keep chasing these wants, you're going to end up in discontentedness because your mind's going to want this and you're going to chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it. And you're going to get it. And then you'll be happy for a period of time, maybe a few hours, a few days, maybe a week or two, but then you're going to have more wants. And now your mind's discontent again. It's going to chase and chase and chase. And then this cycle just keeps on going on and on and on. So this is explaining to you the problem, which is discontentedness. The cause of that problem, which is craving, desire, attachment. The solution to that problem is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And the complete solution is the Eightfold Path. In four simple statements, the Buddha is explaining to you all of these things, the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. And now you can experience this breakthrough where now once and for all you understand what's causing your mind to be discontent. And now the rest of the path is going to focus you on how to now train the mind to now get to this liberation. But this is a foundational step to be able to help you to establish what's called Right view. You're establishing right view here. What wrong view would be is to blame other people for your feelings and your emotions. If you have wrong view, you'll continue to blame other people or something external for why you're feeling the way you feel. But if you establish right view, then you understand that it's your own mind that's causing these discontent feelings. And that's where you can get to real liberation because when you understand what the real problem is, then you can actually implement the solution. But as long as you don't understand the problem, you'll continue to go around being confused and having misunderstanding, and you won't be able to actually solve the problem. So that's why this is the first step, because it's helping you to identify what the real problem is in the mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. This is the foundation. So do you guys have any questions on this step? Yes, ma'am. So, um, I'm not sure why that mic's going in and out like that. Yeah, I don't know if it needs new batteries. There are batteries there. Maybe try the other mic. You guys have probably have to switch the batteries around. There you go.
6: Okay. <laughs> um so the pollution, so if you uh if if I or we um uh, feel um um kind of a um so discontented feeling, it's maybe my problem. So not from others, then But uh, if so, um, if your child, so if you find your child is bullied or teased from from yeah, um, classmate or something like that, then how do you deal with it? So you explain, so it's your to to the addressing or um, the addressing. Anyway, so those young people. So sometimes it's uh, they might encounter those suggestion, and then so you found oh so my my ch- child so um, faced to kind of um, fetter or <laughs> uh, situation. So how uh, as a parent, how we have to or should explain or help to um, children.
1: Not sure i understand your question 100 percent. sorry 100%. Are, are you saying how do you help your child yes. to understand this
6: yeah if you're if you um found your children or a child mm-hmm. bullied or oh, teased okay. Okay. yeah battery
1: yeah. So if someone's being teased at school, right, this is where their personal existence view is kicking in because now somebody's saying, ah, look at you, four eyes, you got glasses, right? So they're, they're talking about their self-image. And now because of personal existence view, mm-hmm. they're going to get angry or frustrated or agitated. So you can teach a child to ignore this, but helping them to understand impermanence, helping them to understand discontentedness, non-self, affordable truths. This is what I needed to do with my son from the age of six. I was teaching him these teachings. Now he's 11 and he doesn't experience hardly any discontentedness, maybe once, twice a year. He has a little bit of discontentedness here and there. So a child can learn these things, but you teach them differently. You teach them through like games and activities. So when I taught my son about the universal truth of impermanence, mm-hmm. then we went on a scavenger hunt. Outside, And we looked for things that were impermanent and permanent. Mm -hmm. And we walked around the village and he helped me to find things that were impermanent. So I needed to gradually teach him these kinds of things. And then I would kind of observe when there was the potential for his personal existence view to get triggered. To see if his mind was discontent in those situations. And then I would help him through those situations. So there's a lot of training that a child mm-hmm. can do, but the parent needs to have a lot of wisdom to be able to guide them through that.
6: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's if, yeah, every child, uh, every child, so it's really tra- trained like your child. So mm-hmm. no problem. But uh, it's, it's a lot of bad stuff <laughs> happened so in our school. So I just wondered so so if my problem so okay so i i'm going to um so solve by myself mm-hmm. so using this whole, um kind of um teaching uh but uh, if if those people who not who who doesn't know about this this kind of um um tip uh for living. so i just wondered how to deal. So, maybe, so anyway, um, as much as possible, so try to, explain this stuff
1: yeah you can sit down with a child and you explain it to them and, and you talk to them little by little like nice little lessons there's other classes that i teach mm-hmm. about how to teach children i've actually recorded it before so if you're interested in teaching children you can look on our website or not on our website on the uh, youtube channel mm-hmm. and you can look for how to teach children Mm -hmm. You can search for that and you'll see the video come up where I explain how to teach a child just to get you started. Mm -hmm. And then when I teach children's retreats, which I taught one last week, you can see how I teach children through games and things like this. You know, they're not going to be able to sit down in a four hour day to learn these kinds of things. So you do it in little small bits and pieces and you do it through games and activities.
6: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Now, earlier I was mentioning about this microphone wasn't working, and I, and I kind of mentioned I'm not sure why, but I think you guys know why this microphone's not working, right? Impermanence, right? The Buddha explains what's going on in the world around us, right? Even the microphones, right? And when you log into your computer and you can't get into your Facebook or Instagram, that's impermanence, right? Or, or sometimes you you try to work with your computer and it just doesn't work. This is impermanence. Or sometimes your phone. So when you're sitting there being frustrated and agitated that your computer's not working, it's just impermanence. And as long as you have a craving for it to work permanently when it's not working, you'll be frustrated and agitated. So you have a question, Mary? The light's on.
7: Oh, there you go. You've probably calmed me down already, actually. But the last couple of days I've been, I would say, agitated. The accommodation where I'm living is a mix of hotel and a hostel mm-hmm. um, with a lovely swimming pool. Uh, I'm fortunate I've got a, a room that's a balcony over the swimming pool. About two days ago, there's been a group of about eight to 10 younger people. I'm hoping i gonna take, a, I don't wanna offend anybody in the respect of this, they do it. But every day and going into, the, late into the evening, they're smoking cannabis and, and drinking a lot of beer. And then one, two, three o'clock in the morning, they're coming back and waking quite a lot of people up. So today I was actually going to complain to the owner of the property because there's a few people that, dis- that have discussed it. But should I, with what you're saying, should I just leave it? And because obviously my issue is I know it is illegal in public areas to smoke weed, um, but it's going into my room, there's children around the swimming pool, and it's. I don't really know how to deal with it, but should I just leave it?
1: Sure. So what the Buddha is teaching you is how to maintain your calmness and composure. And then with that calmness and composure, you can come up with a wise decision of how to address any particular problem because there's so many different variables in any one problem, right? Like how long is your reservation for? Have you paid already? What's your income? You know, do you have disposable income to be able to move to another room or another hotel or what is it, right? So Each individual situation is going to have unique variables. So the way to solve it is going to be unique in each situation. But with your calmness and composure without craving, desire, attachment, you'll find those wise decision making. So if you went to the owner, for example, and said, hey, owner, you know, I really apologize I need to talk to you about this. I really enjoy your hotel. This is a great place. I think what you guys have done here is amazing. I enjoy staying here and I'm booked in for the next one week. But I noticed that there's some people that are smoking weed in front of my room and I'm I'm wondering if we can come up with a solution to this. Is there a way for me to maybe move to a different room or do you have another option or is that an option to get a refund you know all these kinds of things you could brainstorm that with them and figure out what the right solution is because each time there's different unique variables but you'll be able to do that more readily and more wisely and have a wholesome outcome when your mind's calm. So the Buddha is here in the Four Noble Truths, he's not teaching you like what to do in any given situation, he's just explaining to you why your mind experiences discontentedness so that now you can maintain your calmness and you can get to wisdom. So like that example with the uh, the car, the scratch on the car, in that situation if you get angry and hostile and bitter and maybe say like the person that scratched your car is nearby, someone might attack that person aggressively aggressively and fight them. And now they end up in jail, right? There's probably been people murdered over scratched car, right? And now that person who did the murdering is in jail for the rest of their life. And this is really unfortunate because they just had a craving and they didn't understand impermanence. But if you can maintain your calmness, maybe you look and you say, did they leave a note? Oh, they didn't leave a note. Okay. Well, maybe I'll go talk to the security guards. Maybe there's CCTV that could help me to be able to figure out who did this. But if you went into the CCTV people, the security guards, and you were like aggressive and hostile and bitter and you were complaining, Now they're not going to be willing to work with you and they're not going to be able to help you because they're going to see this aggression coming at them and they're not going to be interested in helping you. But if you can maintain your calmness and composure, maybe there's a note, maybe you can talk to the security guards, maybe you have insurance, you can go get it fixed, whatever way that you solve it is up to you. So you're going to need to look at your situation and you're going to need to now it sounds like the next step is talk to the owner. I would encourage you to not think about it as complaining, change your perspective, and think of it as I'm going to this person to try to figure out a solution. And this is the person that can help me to figure out that solution. But I'm going to maintain my calmness and composure as I talk to this person. And then the things that I'm going to teach you here in a moment about right intention, right speech and right action, that's going to help you to be able to be better in that situation where you're talking to the owner or the manager. Yeah, that's well there's there's what's causing the mind to be discontent and of course you have a certain craving that's why it's causing the mind to be discontent but then there's also wise decision making that if you need your rest and you're just not getting rest and you're not feeling rested in the morning you're going to need to get some sleep right but eventually you will get to the point where you're not attached to sleep even sometimes people feel like when they wake up in the morning that they're grumpy because they didn't get sleep. But actually it's not because of that. It's because they're craving a certain amount of sleep. So an enlightened being could sleep for two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, six hours. It doesn't matter. They'll wake up and they'll feel joyful regardless of how much sleep they've actually had. They won't be grumpy just because they only had maybe four hours of sleep or something like that. So there's what's causing your mind to be discontent, but then you also need to be attentive to making wise decisions. But if you do stay in that situation, you can train your mind to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment to wanting things to be a certain way. That's one of the ways to approach these kinds of situations. And that's where you need to decide for yourself, what would be the most beneficial? Should I stay in this Situation and train my mind to eliminate this craving? Or am I needing sleep here? And if I don't get sleep, I'm not going to be able to function as well to learn the Buddhist teachings and all the other things I need to do over this week. And that's what you would like to look at and make those decisions for yourself. And that's where you know all the variables about your income, your financial situation, your sleep, and where you'll be best prepared to make those kinds of decisions. And you'll do it better when your mind's calm. Mm -hmm. Looks like we have a question here on Zoom. Let me see. My eyes are not so good. I'm going to have to look here. Your eyesight's impermanent, right? Let's see. Uh, Miriam's asking, how to avoid having people putting expectations on me without hurting them when I don't want to do what they want me to do? Should I just cut off the discontentedness and let it go? and do whatever they expect, because in the end, it's not that important to me. For example, they want to go out to dinner and I'm not really up to it, but I could go without being upset, just not in the mood. Okay, let me put this back. So when someone has expectations of you, that's their craving, desire, attachment. You can't stop them from attempting to put their expectations on you. All you can do is choose to not adopt their expectations as your expectations. This is one of the things that you'll see in your relationships because people don't understand right view, just like I told you, how the mind will either push people away. It'll be bitter and harsh and hostile or put its expectations on people. People are going to be trying to put their expectations on you. They may have already been doing this, right? And if you keep adopting other people's expectations as your own cravings, desires, attachments, then what you're teaching these people is, yeah, keep putting your expectations on me. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then when you do what they want you to do, they'll be happy. And when you don't do what they want you to do, They'll be frustrated or angry. And what you'll end up experiencing is you'll have a bunch of people that are tugging and pulling at you in different directions. And this is very unwise to adopt other people's expectations as your own. Instead, what I would encourage you to do is not to do what people are wanting you to do or expecting you to do. So if your family has a certain expectation and they want you to be here, you'll You know, chase, 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 try to get to that expectation. Your family will be happy for a period of time, maybe a couple of hours, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, but then their expectations are going to change. And now you're going to have to chase and chase and chase and chase that. And all you're going to be doing is chasing other people's expectations because you're adopting them as your own. So, in the example that you're providing where somebody's inviting you to dinner and they're getting irritated, or you know they will get irritated if you don't go, in my opinion, it's better to not go because, in that situation if you don't go you're helping them to let go of their attachment and ultimately if they choose to push you away because this is something that an unenlightened being can do that if they experience those painful feelings because you didn't meet their expectation they might push you away then okay so be it this person isn't actually practicing true love where they're loving you as you are because if you allow people to continue to put expectations, you're gonna have five, 10, 20, 30 people pulling you in all these opposite directions. They're gonna to continue to get discontent and you're gonna be discontent too because you're adopting their expectations. In our household, nobody gets agitated or annoyed. My wife, my son, me, we all do our own independent things, but we come together as a family and do things together too. We all had to work at that, right? And it's not just our immediate family, but even our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, our brothers, our sisters, our nieces and nephews, everybody around us. They've trained their mind to not tug and pull at each other in opposite directions. And what you do is, in situations where someone is expecting something, is you insert some impermanence. So, going back to teaching children, this is what I needed to do with my son, where certain situations where he was expecting me to do something, I would intentionally do just the opposite and train him that dad isn't going to always do what you expect. So now he can be happy and he can be joyful regardless of what dad does. His emotions aren't contingent or dependent on me. So in modern psychology, they call this a codependent relationship. So if you have a bunch of people around you that are basing their emotions on you and what you do, that means if you do what they want, they will get pleasant feelings. If you don't do what they want, they'll get painful feelings. And now you're going to be in this constant struggle where they're going to be Blaming you when they have painful feelings. So it's better to create relationships and maintain your relationships in ways that wherever you see somebody trying to put their expectations on you, that you don't adopt those expectations. And you, in some cases, even though it's easy enough for you to go out to dinner with them and you'd be perfectly content to do that, in some cases, it's better to do just the opposite. And then that helps them to release their attachment. But you can do this in very skillful ways, right? Like say somebody invites you to dinner and you know you could easily go to dinner, but you also know that if you don't go, they're gonna get upset. So what I would say to this person is it's called the art of the friendly no. How to say no without saying no. Okay, it's the art of the friendly no. How to say no without saying no. So somebody invites me to dinner and I'll say, oh, okay, that sounds like a really nice restaurant. If I'm able to go, I will let you know, right? So I haven't said no. I just said, hey, if I'm able to go, I'll let you know. Or maybe it it might be somebody that says, hey, let's go out to dinner like right now. Would you like to go out to dinner? Um, I really want to go out to dinner with you. I really want to talk to you. I just got to talk to you. If I don't talk to you, I'll be so angry. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Um, I appreciate the invite, but I've got some other things I need to be doing. Why don't you go eat dinner and then we'll talk a little bit later. Right? So I haven't said no. I just like trying to let this person's mind to let me go. And then they might say, oh no, no, no. Like you've got to go to dinner with me. You've got to go. Yeah. I understand. It's really important to you and you'd like me to go to dinner with you. But I tell you what, if you go eat, then let's talk a couple hours later. Right. So this person can train their mind like, no, you don't have to go to dinner with me. Right. So there's different ways you can kind of. Do what we call let people down easily, where you can help them to just move on. And then they can see that, no, their happiness doesn't need to be contingent on you. Because if you went forward in that situation, now they're going to be happy when you can go. But when you can't go in a future situation, they're going to be angry and frustrated and they're going to blame you. This relationship's going to end, right? They're going to eventually push you aside. So when you're forming relationships, it's best to introduce some impermanence into the relationship relationship so that the person doesn't get their mind attached to you. So if you're noticing people are sending you text messages, for example, and it's like one after another, after another, or if you don't reply within like five minutes and they get angry and irritated, start putting more and more space in your text messages, like one hour, two hours, eventually one day, eventually two days where you don't reply to people. Because if you let people's minds grab at you and they get angry, if you don't reply to them within five or 10 minutes, you're going to have a bunch of people that are doing that. And you can't reply to people permanently within five minutes. Otherwise, you're going to be tied to your phone and you're going to be attached to your phone. So you would like to create this lifestyle where the people around you aren't tugging and pulling at you. So where you see people tugging and pulling at you, introduce them in permanence, whether it's invitations to dinners or parties or text messages or phone calls or things like this. And there's creative ways that you can do this where you're using... Right intention, right speech, right action. Because one of the most loving and kind things that you could do for somebody is help them eliminate attachment, create an environment for them where they can let this go. And then they won't be frustrated when you don't reply to them within five minutes or 10 minutes. And there's various skillful things that you can do like this. But remember, this practice is 100% focused on your mind. So that's why I started with don't adopt other people's expectations as your expectations there is this other aspect of your training where you can skillfully help other people to let go of their attachments. But when you're just starting, it's important to focus on your own mind and developing your mind to eliminate cravings, desires, attachments. But as you get going, you'll be able to learn how to skillfully, with wisdom, help other people to let go of their attachments too. And that's going to involve you not being attached to them and not adopting their expectations as yours. So thank you for your question there, Miriam. All right,
8: um, yeah. So we have hello, yeah. We have spoken a little bit about this. So uh, I'm curious about my own craving, desire, or attachment. If you can help me unlock it it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a sort of macro, macro picture kind of thing. Where yeah, they we talked about the energy or my energy about the. Uh, engaging with the sort of the bigger system in the world and, uh, yeah, I come from sales and business uh, consulting in a way. And, uh, uh, yeah, the willingness to sort of engage in that uh, system and, uh, chasing, chasing money and all those things. Um, yeah, my own sales background, a lot of sort of using NLP manipulation tactics and and, and those kind of things. And we just see a lot of that around in the world. And have a resistance to to engaging in in that uh, sort of behavior um so so what what am i holding on to or desiring
1: the the money part of it is that what well you're
8: yeah maybe part of it and also the work uh, work part
1: yeah so so oftentimes if somebody has a certain career a certain job your mind can be craving this job to be permanent or Maybe the, the coworkers that are your friends, or maybe you're clinging to them and attached to them or the money or the title or the job location. There can be many attachments. It's oftentimes not just one. So the more intense your discontentedness, the more attachments that you have there and the deeper held they are. So even though we call it craving, desire, attachment, there's a whole spectrum here. I call it a longing and a yearning so you can see this extreme part of it. But there's also like, I would just want this. And if you don't get it, you'll kind of be irritated and annoyed. So there's a whole spectrum of cravings in terms of intensity. And then because of that, there's a whole spectrum of discontent feelings that can go from very minor, like agitation, all the way up to intense rage, depending on how much craving, desire, attachment is in the mind. Either one particular attachment being deeply held and a strong attachment, or you can, in any one situation where your mind's becoming discontent, you can have two, three, four, five, six different attachments at any given time.
8: Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that I have a sort of a desire that to, to have the world to be a certain way, and, mm-hmm. and it's multifaceted, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah um. yeah these cravings desires attachments This is going to take you guys time this is why it's gradual training gradual practice gradual progress one of the ways i think about the unenlightened mind is like if you had like a, a pickup truck and you had a bunch of garbage in the back of the pickup truck and then you had a cargo net over top of that garbage you have to go around and snip and disconnect each individual anchor point of the cargo net in order to get all this garbage to come out of the bed of the truck. So you have all these different anchor points where the mind is attached and craving and holding on and you need to go around and snip and cut each one of these anchor points to liberate the mind and free the mind of this pollution. So you guys are going to need to develop the practice of not only meditating, that's a certain skill and ability that you develop, but this skill and ability to look inward and be able to identify your own cravings, desires, attachments, this is going to help you to then be able to get liberated from them. Because as you're going to learn on the Eightfold Path, there's this generalized training that you need to do in order to eliminate these cravings, desires, attachments, certain proactive training. But then there's also putting your mind in the situation that it's attached to in order to train it to let go. So like what Mary was talking about, like realizing that she's craving for people to not be around her room smoking marijuana. One of the ways to eliminate that craving is to Just stay in the room and she's going to need to train her mind to be peaceful and joyful and ignore this thing that's occurring that is temporary. It's an impermanent thing. It's only going to be temporary. You know, however long she's staying there, it's temporary. When they're in front of her room, it's maybe 30 minutes or an hour, however long they're there that's temporary too. But the mind is craving this permanence, so therefore it's becoming agitated. So in some situations, you might put your mind in the situation to train it to be peaceful and joyful in that situation. Mm. So you would recommend me to keep chasing money and keep manipulating? No, it, it, it depends on the situation. Each situation is different. So your mind is craving the money, you're craving the job, you're holding on to the job. So putting your mind in a different situation uh, um, her mind her mind is craving to not have people in front of her room that are smoking marijuana so she's putting her mind in the situation that it doesn't want to be in so your mind wants to be with this job so oftentimes the way to train it is to do just the opposite yeah so i would say
8: that's where i'm at the moment i'm more about the
1: resistance to the uh
8: manipulation or engaging with
1: the behavior so you're going to need to know the entire eightfold path which is what i'm going to share with you today but remember when we talked about generosity because when the mind's holding on to money Mm -hmm. the way to train it to let go is to practice generosity where you're giving and sharing that's the way to train the mind to let go because what it wants is to hold on And you're doing just the opposite, which is to let go. What Mary's mind wants is nobody to be in front of my room and smoking marijuana. So what she's doing is she's training it potentially, it sounds like, to do just the opposite, which is just deal with it and train the mind to be peaceful and joyful. So you're typically looking to do just the opposite of what the mind wants. It's kind of like a wild animal. If a wild animal wants to run around and frolic in the forest, The animal tamer is going to say, no, 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 come over here and sit down. And it's going to be trained to sit and, you know, be more tame. So that's what you're doing with the mind is you're taming the mind because it's chasing after things. And you're saying, no, 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 sit right here. You'll be fine without this money. You know, train your mind to practice generosity. Mm. All right. Thanks. Yep. And you're going to learn more here in a moment. Yes, ma'am.
5: So I feel like I have this delay, (laughs) so I know all of this. Mm -hmm. And then in the moment, Mm -hmm. I sort of forget. And I'm catching myself sooner and sooner, but there is this reaction. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious is just a tip in that moment. So I have Mm -hmm. this neighbor that just drops in, Mm -hmm. and I don't have kind of a, A garden gate so to speak Mm -hmm. and so the other night i had somebody over for dinner and they knocked on the door i didn't answer because i didn't hear it but then suddenly Mm -hmm. they came around the back and said oh you know can we join you Mm -hmm. and i was like and so in that moment i i I sort of freeze Mm -hmm. and then there was a slight reaction Um, and then I just sort of accepted it and they sat down, but none of that felt comfortable, but Mm. I'm just noticing like with the hotel thing the other night, not having the room on Mm. New Year's Eve, there was this immediate, like what I call my box 13, like, you know, it's, it's not enlightened at all. And Mm -hmm. then maybe within a minute or two, but I'd love to know how to not have the delay and maybe that's practice but that's my question (laughs) sure
1: sure so there's the intellectual learning, which is what you're doing now, right? You're intellectually learning it. I think most of you guys are intellectually understanding what I'm sharing with you. And you're seeing like, yeah, the mind is causing its own discontent feelings, but then there's going out into the world and practicing it. And and this is where the mind is oftentimes challenged and it's struggled. And that's the practice that's developing your life practice that what I'm going to teach you on the rest of the Eightfold Path is how to proactively train the mind to get ahead of the curve, because the of mind is like this fist that has this craving that's kind of marching forward and longing and yearning. And then you're kind of developing this life practice alongside like a parallel process. And you're trying to kind of gradually sneak up on this mind and kind of envelop it with these teachings so that now it's fully absorbed these teachings. And this takes time. And there are certain proactive teachings that you learn, like meditation meditation and generosity and other things like that. But then there's also teachings that you learn of things you do in the moment when these things are being experienced. So by the time we get to the end of the Eightfold Path, you'll have seen all of that and you'll be able to more readily implement things in these situations. So we could talk about each one of those situations, like maybe in like a personal guidance session or something, and I could help you understand a little bit more. But still, even when you're learning, this is that tweaking of the eight dials that you're going to be constantly tweaking this until your mind cultivates enough wisdom where it's practicing these teachings effortlessly. That's not where the mind is in the unenlightened state. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you'll be practicing them effortlessly, but you just need to have the intellectual learning, of course, and you'll intellectually understand the reflection, and then you develop your practice more and more. You go through this long period of time on the path to enlightenment, years, where you've intellectually learned something, but you just can't practice it. And this can even arise frustration. If you have craving to be perfect, Right, you can be discontent because you're discontent. It's like, you know what you should be doing in this situation, but the mind just won't do it. And you're getting discontent potentially in some situations because of that. Some people get that way. So you'll go through a long period of time where intellectually you'll know what is the wise thing to do, but the mind just hasn't cultivated enough discipline to be able to actually do it on a consistent basis but by the time you get to enlightenment you will have cultivated that discipline but let me get to the end of the eightfold path and then you'll be able to see more and more of what to do in the moment and then also proactive things as well okay i'm not seeing any other questions here so what i'm going to do is Just show you guys that what we're working towards is building out this entire eightfold path. This is the fourth noble truth is each of these individual factors is what's going to help you to be able to understand how to develop your life practice. And now I'm going to share with you guys the Second step, which is right intention, and then we'll take a little break at that point. So right intention is the second factor of the Eightfold Path. And these are the words of the Buddha on right intention. He says, in what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This is called right intention. So here he's talking about three different things, renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. Some people refer to right intention as right thinking or right thought. That's what you're trying to develop here is the right thinking or the right thought or the right intention to practice renunciation, non-ill will and harmlessness. What renunciation is, is the interest and willingness to let go and give up unwholesomeness of the mind like the mind's false beliefs and the false perceptions of reality. There are certain things that your mind is holding on to right now that are false beliefs and false opinions, false views. But it, as long as your mind is holding on to those, it's going to continue to experience discontentedness over and over and over again. So you need to be able to practice the intention of letting go. And this is essentially like having an open mind, because if your mind is experiencing agitation, annoyance, irritation, frustration, there's certain things that your mind hasn't cultivated the wisdom about. So there's certain things that your mind's going to need to let go of that are false beliefs that aren't serving you well right now, misperceptions, and there are certain things you're going to need to bring into your mind as well. And you're not just eliminating false beliefs and bringing in new beliefs. That's not what the path to enlightenment is all about. As you guys have heard me share, it's about cultivating wisdom. So you're eliminating beliefs, but you're cultivating wisdom. You're bringing in wisdom through learning, reflecting, and practicing. And as you bring in this wisdom, now you can see the truth more and more clearly by practicing the intention of renunciation. One of the first false beliefs, one of the first misperceptions, misunderstandings that you need to let go of is that other people are causing you To be irritated or annoyed or frustrated or agitated or angry. That's one of the first things you need to eliminate because of right view, which I just taught you, right? You need to learn that, yeah, it's not other people that are causing you to be angry. It's your mind that's causing it itself based on craving, desire, attachment. So if you weren't practicing the intention of renunciation, you would just be holding on to everything that you think you currently know and you wouldn't be able to get any help. So having the intention of renunciation is the willingness to have an open mind to let go of the things that are in your mind that are confusion, misunderstanding, false beliefs, and things of this nature. The second aspect of right intention is to practice the intention of non-ill will. Non-ill will is a double negative, so non-ill will is the same thing as goodwill. What the Buddha is teaching you here is to practice loving kindness, the intention of goodwill. You need to have the intention of goodwill towards all beings, including this being who you are. If you have ill will in your mind, that means You're going to have the intention of anger, hatred, and ill will towards other beings. And this couples together with the intention of harmlessness, where you're disinterested or incapable of causing harm. You're just not interested in causing harm to other beings. Because as long as you have the intention to be harmful, you'll put that harmful thing into the world, and now this harm will come back to you. So by cultivating the intention of harmlessness coupled with your goodwill or non-ill will, now you'll be interested in seeing all beings be well. You're not interested in causing harm to others. Because your mind doesn't fully know how to practice harmlessness yet, You'll still do things over the course of your life until you fully transform the mind that will be harmful to other people, but you need to start with the intention of harmlessness where you're disinterested or incapable of causing harm to others. And you cultivate this more and more and more because what you're going to learn here after our break is as long as you're putting out harm, harm's going to keep coming back to you. This is the natural law of gamma of cause and effect. So here with right intention, you're developing the intention of renunciation of non-ill will and harmlessness. And this is what's gonna help you to have the right thinking or the right thought to now build out the rest of the path. So just to summarize this, right view is the Four Noble Truths, Accepting responsibility for your own feelings, your intentions, your speech, and your actions. Oftentimes we blame other people in the unenlightened state. When you get angry, you might blame mom or dad or brothers or sisters or other people. And this is just causing you difficulties in your relationships. You can't live harmoniously with all beings. As long as you're pushing people away, you're being bitter and harsh and hostile, you're putting your expectations on people. And then coupled with right view, which is the real foundation that you understand that your mind is causing its own discontent feelings so you can start looking inward. Now that one of the first things you cultivate in the mind is right intention, which is the intention of renunciation, non-ill will or loving kindness and this intention of harmlessness and this serves as the wisdom section of the eightfold path this gives you the foundation to now talk about the moral conduct that we're going to be discussing which is where you're going to learn about the natural law of karma. the buddha is not going to teach you rules and commandments he's going to teach you this cause and effect by improving your moral conduct now you can experience improved results in your life So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a break. It's basically 11 o'clock. So let's get back together at 1115 and I'm going to pick it up here with the moral conduct section and helping you guys to understand the rest of the entire path to enlightenment, not only the moral conduct, but the mental discipline as well. So for those of you guys online, we're going to get back together in 15 minutes. For those of you guys here, same thing. So I'll see you guys at 1115. Okay. Thank you for your questions and your interest to learn. We'll see you guys in a little bit. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started again to continue us forward on the Eightfold Path here. We've already discussed right view and right intention, which is the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. Now we're gonna move into this moral conduct section with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Whenever you're studying anything about moral conduct related to the teachings of the Buddha, it's important to always remember that what he's sharing with you is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. Sometimes when people study teachings like this, they look at them as rules or commandments or things like this or that maybe somebody's trying to force you to do something particular, but that's not what the Buddha is actually doing. He's exposing you to this natural laws of existence, namely the natural law of gamma. He's showing you the cause and effect or the action and result so that by you cultivating the wisdom on these natural laws, you will naturally make wiser decisions that produce wholesome results. And with a lack of wisdom, you're going to make unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. So what this natural law of gamma is just as an introduction, because... Because on Thursday, I'm going to be going into it in detail, but just as a bit of an introduction, what the natural law of gamma is is this cause and effect or action and result. It's the results of your decisions, it's your life. It's your decisions and your results. Everything you experience in life is a result of your decisions. The word karma is the Pali word that is used in the original source teachings of the Buddha. If it translated to just one English word, I would use that, but unfortunately it doesn't, so I need to use this Pali word. Some people refer to it as karma. That's the Sanskrit version. It's the same thing, just a different language. It's not mystical or magical. It's not punishments and rewards. It's not about who's at fault or who's to blame. It's it's literally just the results of your decisions for example if you're polite kind friendly and respectful people tend to be polite kind friendly respectful to you whereas if you're just the opposite if you're impolite unkind unfriendly and disrespectful people will tend to be that way with you as well so what the buddha is giving you in the the right speech, right action, and right livelihood, this moral conduct section, is he's showing you the natural law of karma of cause and effect, where if you practice these things, you're going to experience wholesome results in your life. So he's giving you the wisdom of this natural law. And you do all the same thing that I've been sharing is you learn it, you reflect on it to independently verify it, and then you practice it, right? You're not believing any of the teachings of the Buddha. So as I go, I'm going to share with you the words of the Buddha on each one of these steps, and then I'm going to invite you to learn it reflect on it. And then when you practice it, that's where you're going to see the real results to the condition of your mind and your relationships are going to drastically improve because you're not causing harm anymore. So this moral conduct section is based on the foundation that you've already learned, that you understand right view that your mind is causing its own discontent feelings. Because if you had wrong view where you thought other people were causing you to be angry and frustrated, you might feel justified in your speech and your actions being aggressive and hostile and bitter but if you understand that your mind is causing your own discontent feelings then you understand like okay i need to improve this conduct here right so it's based on that right view but it's also based on right intention the intention of renunciation that your willingness to let go of this unwholesome moral conduct, that you're practicing non ill will, which is goodwill, because you're going to see that in this moral conduct, that there's goodwill in there, that loving kindness, and the intention of harmlessness. Your moral conduct is formed around the intention of harmlessness, where you're disinterested or incapable of causing harm to others. And now the Buddha is going to teach you how to not cause harm to others through your speech, actions, and livelihood. So here in right speech, what the Buddha says is, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So he's giving you four aspects of right speech here. Now, as he describes this, he's describing to you the natural law of gamma of what's going to produce wholesome results in your life. So you can actually take what he's sharing here and you can look at your own direct experience of when you've actually done these things or people around you have done these things, and you can see the unwholesome results that occur. And you can also see in situations where you haven't done these things, the wholesome results that occur. So for example, we've all lied at different times in our life, especially as we were growing up as children, We lied. And when we lie, did it produce wholesome results? Absolutely not right? We always experience these unwholesome results as we lie in our life. Not only do you experience difficulties in your relationships when you lie, people don't consider you to be trustworthy, independable, but if you've done a lot of lying, you know that your mind was kind of overactive trying to figure out what did you say to one person versus what did you say to another person and your mind's having to constantly sort that out and figure that out. So how could you ever get to this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy if your mind is obsessively having to figure out what did you say to one person versus another and if you're lying in your personal professional relationships those people are going to find out they're going to discover it and then they're going to not trust you you're not going to be dependable and you're going to have relationships that are strained so the buddha is teaching you here about this cause and effect or this action and result of the natural law of gamma that by eliminating lying you will experience more wholesome results in your life and then the same thing with slander or gossip. What this is, is speaking in ways that damages somebody's reputation. Either a person, a company, an organization, or something like this. If you slander people, if you degrade them or diminish them, and they experience the diminishing of their reputation, You've harmed that person and now they're going to come after you looking to harm you. There's been people that have been murdered over these kinds of things, right? And then there's harsh speech. This is your tone, your tempo, and your word choice, how you choose to speak. That if you can speak gentle, this is going to be much more beneficial to you. Whereas if you're harsh in your tone, your tempo, and your word choice, it's going to produce unwholesome results. So the Buddha is teaching you to eliminate harsh speech. And then he's talking about eliminating frivolous speech. What this is is like idle chatter or unbeneficial, unpurposeful speech. If you've ever done this or you've known somebody that's done it, it's like yada, 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 yada. Ah, it's like broadcast. It's not a conversation. Someone's broadcasting to you or you're broadcasting to them. Whereas if you do this, you're going to be less influential in your career and in your personal life because you're just yada, 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 unbeneficial, unpurposeful talk. There's no real purpose behind it. So here, these are the four aspects of right speech in the Eightfold Path eliminating lying, slander, harsh speech, and frivolous speech. And this might be a certain level of moral conduct that you need to work on, depending on where you are in your current practice. Each person comes to the path to enlightenment with certain aspects of practice. Maybe you already you haven't been lying for maybe five years or 10 years. You haven't said any lies whatsoever. So maybe you've already got that one under your belt, but maybe some of these others you need to work on. As you work on those and you start eliminating those, then there's a deeper teaching. Because remember I mentioned how the Eightfold Path is this core central teaching and all the other teachings kind of plug into it. There's this teaching called the Five Factors of Well-Spoken Speech. And this is gonna get you to a much deeper level of practice related to speech. Here's what the Buddha is sharing with you about the five factors of well-spoken speech. He's sharing that you should speak at the proper time, what you say is true, spoken gently, beneficial, and with a mind of loving kindness. What speaking at the right time is, is there's three aspects to this. The first one is that you're not interrupting people, right? Because you know that when people interrupt you, you don't like it. So if you are in conversations where you were constantly interrupting people, you're gonna damage your relationships. That's the first aspect of it. The second aspect is, speaking at the proper time, is that your mind's ready to talk. Because if you're agitated, if you're annoyed, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, that's not the right time to talk. Because the only thing that's gonna come out of your mouth is agitation, anger, hatefulness, and people are gonna feel that, they're gonna sense that, and it's gonna damage your relationships. So make sure your mind is calm before you start talking. And then the third aspect of this is to make sure that the other person's mind is ready to talk. Like let's just say you got a notice in the mail that you haven't paid your rent this month, maybe you forgot to pay your rent, and you're gonna get kicked out in three days if you don't pay your rent. Well, now say your life partner or your roommate comes home and they just got home from work, and now you jump on them. Like, oh my goodness, we didn't pay the rent. We're going to get kicked out. If you did this kind of thing, this is the wrong time to talk. They're just getting home from work. Let them come home, put their bags down, get some water, get some food. Maybe you ask them, hey, is this a good time to talk about something important? And maybe they say, sure, what do you got? Right. And then you share it with them. Or maybe they say, you know what? It was a really hard day at work today. Can we talk about this tomorrow? And if you don't have craving, you should be able to delay your conversation because if you talk about it today or you talk about it tomorrow, no big deal, right? You can still solve this tomorrow. You got three days to pay this, right? And nowadays, the way to move money around, it's pretty quick and pretty easy to pay things, right? So this speaking at the right time is ensuring that you're not interrupting people, that your mind is ready to talk. And that the person you're talking to, that their mind is at the right time to talk. If it's not the right time to talk, then just don't talk. That's why it's the first one. The Buddha listed these things in order for a reason. So you need to make sure it's the right time to talk. The second one is the same thing as the core central teaching here in the Eightfold Path, which is ensure everything you say is the truth. Not only ensuring that you're not telling a deliberate lie, but also making sure you're representing the truth. And you're not just spreading conspiracy theories or things that you haven't confirmed for yourself. You need to be able to see the truth and know that what you're saying is the actual truth, that you're not just sharing things that you heard, like hearsay and things like this. So by ensuring that you're sharing the truth and that it's something that you've independently verified, you know that you're always speaking the truth. And one of the ways to preserve the truth is you can say things, well, based on my experience or based on my thoughts or uh, my opinion is, or this is my thought, or this is what I experienced, where you may not be able to talk in absolutes, where this is the way that it is. You might not be able to do that in certain situations. So you can preserve truth by kind of talking about it from what you know. Based on what I know, this is what I would share, right? This is a way for you to preserve the truth. So, be sure that you're always speaking the truth. And then speaking gently, that's your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. You're gonna need to really work at this because in some situations, maybe you can't speak gentle. Maybe when you're speaking to your parents or your siblings or your children or your life partner or something like this, you might notice that you're sometimes harsh and aggressive and hostile. So, when you have craving, desire, attachment in your mind, wanting mom to be a certain way or wanting your brothers and sisters to be a certain way, it's going to be hard for you to speak gentle. So this is why you're going to need the next section of the Eightfold Path, which is the mental discipline, to be able to train your mind so that you can speak gentle. But pay attention to your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. That's what's going to ensure that you're speaking gently. Then you'd like to speak beneficially. This is purposefully. This is ensuring that you're not having idle chatter or this frivolous speech. So speaking beneficially is ensuring you have a purpose. And sometimes when you meet people, you're like, hey, where are you from? How old are you? What do you do? These kinds of things. This is a purpose, right? So it's not necessarily the topic. It's not like always making sure that you're doing this one thing or the other, but it's having a purpose that you're not just broadcasting into the world, that you have a real purpose and it's beneficial to you and it's beneficial to other people. And sometimes the benefit is you're just getting to know this person and you're forming a relationship relationship and you'd like to get to know them. And that's the benefit in this conversation. And then the fifth factor is with a mind of loving kindness. This is the opposite of hate or inner hate. If you were speaking with a mind of inner hate, this is going to cause difficulties in your relationships. So by speaking with a mind of loving kindness, what loving kindness is, is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, this active goodwill. That's how you would like to have your speech emanate from this loving kindness. So if you have right intention, which we talked about has that loving kindness in there, then you'll be able to then practice right speech where you have this mind of loving kindness. So now that you've learned this, the five factors of well-spoken speech, you can look at situations where you haven't practiced the five factors of well-spoken speech and you can see it didn't go well for you. Even if you miss just one of these factors, right? If you even just missed one or two or three or four, even if you practiced all four, but you missed just one, the conversation didn't necessarily go well. But then look at other situations to independently verify this, where you were practicing these five factors. You might not have known what they were at the time, but you and or the other person were practicing all five of these. And your conversation went great. It went marvelous. It went wonderful. So you can compare and contrast situations where conversations didn't go well and where conversations did go well. And you can see the five factors of well-spoken speech are 100% the truth. And then in your life, as you're practicing, you can dial this in closer and closer. You're going to need to work at it in certain relationships. And as you do, that's where you'll see your relationships really blossom because you're not causing harm through your speech. What we're talking about here around speech the thai people have a phrase that they use and they refer to an individual they say has barra me this is a thai word that when you establish right speech they say ah this person has barra me this word bar me it means the one who people listen to in each village in thailand there's kind of some people there that are going to have me These are the one who people listen to. The villagers know that these people are really wise and they have a very successful life. And a successful life doesn't necessarily mean financially. It means their relationships are going very well. That's what it means to have a successful life in Thailand, that you have really successful relationships, that you're friendly, that you get along with people, that you have very loving and warm relationships. And the way you establish me where you can be influential and helpful to to other people is by practicing the right speech and the five factors of well-spoken speech. So these people who have barami, they're considered to be wise. And then the other villagers will go to them and ask for advice and ask for help because these people are very wise and very helpful. So you can establish barami, the one who people listen to in your community, whether you live in Europe or you live in North America or South America or anywhere that you might live. As you practice the five factors of well spoken speech more and more closely, you will establish bar me. People around you won't know what that word means, but they will just start coming to you more and more because they see you being polite, kind, friendly, respectful in all these situations. For many months and many years, you'll start establishing bar me in your family and in your community and your work environment. And people will look to you more and more as a wise individual who they can get help from if they. Would like to seek help perhaps so this is the five factors of well-spoken speech and right speech in general as part of the core central teaching of the eightfold path in the book developing a life practice the path that leads to enlightenment in chapter five which is where i explain the eightfold path i share many different descriptions of these five factors and all the other aspects of the eightfold path this is just a little bit of that But I encourage you to look to the book to see where I've detailed and described the eightfold path in detail, particularly around right speech, because speech is a way that we oftentimes harm people. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was referred to as right speech. But nowadays, we might think about it as right communication, because we do a lot more than just speech nowadays. We have text messages. We have emails. We have social media posts. We have all kinds of different ways to interact with people. And if you were practicing right speech in all these situations, you're going to see more and more improvement in your relationships. Whereas if say you went into a job interview and you spoke very well at the job interview and they're feeling really good about you, but then they get on your social media and they see all this harshness, all this aggressiveness and hostility, you may not get the job. So if you can practice right speech meaning right communication in your text messages, your emails, your social media posts, where anything you're putting out in terms of communication is based on these five factors of well-spoken speech, that's where you'll see the best results in your life. And where you can't necessarily remember the five factors of well-spoken speech, where you're dialing that in more and more closely, you can maybe think about this first line that I have here, that your speech can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. That's what you would like to ultimately develop. But it's really the, five factors of well-spoken speech and the way that the Buddha describes it, that that's really describing the natural laws of existence and this right speech that you would like to ultimately practice. Then there's right action. Here the Buddha says, in what monks is right action? refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. These are three different things that are very impactful in terms of your bodily actions. What the Buddha is describing here is causing harm through your bodily actions, that your bodily actions can cause harm. He's not giving you an exhaustive list of everything that you could do that would cause harm with your bodily actions. He's just giving you three major ones. Notice he doesn't say, like, don't walk up to someone and punch them in the face. But if you understand right action, that it's causing harm through your bodily actions, you know that that would be unwise. Because if you punch somebody in the face, they're more likely to punch you back. They might have a knife. They might have a gun. Their friends or their family might attack you. It would be very unwise to walk up to someone and punch them in the face, right? So he's not giving you an exhaustive list. He's not saying, you know, don't drag your suitcase through the aisle of a plane and run over people's feet and bump into their knees because planes didn't even exist during his lifetime. So he's not giving you an exhaustive list. He's giving you three major impactful actions that could cause harm. And then you can apply it to all your bodily actions as you move about the world that you're just aware of your body and the actions that you're making that you're not causing harm through those bodily actions. We're gonna actually go through these three in more detail tomorrow when we talk about the five precepts because these are the first five precepts. But the Buddha here in the Eightfold Path is just pointing to the five precepts, where in the five precepts themselves, he describes these things in a lot more detail. So he describes much more detail around taking life, taking what is not given and sexual misconduct. Sometimes when I share this, people ask, You know, David, what is sexual misconduct? Well, the Buddha is going to explain this to you in the five precepts. He goes into a lot of detail about what sexual misconduct is, but I usually like to give you a heads up that what sexual misconduct is, is harmful sexual misconduct. You're going to see him talking about having sex with minors, having sex outside of relationships that you're currently committed to having sex without consent, and things like this. It's important to note that the Buddha doesn't include same-gender relationships as part of sexual misconduct. And the reason why is because if there's a male and a female having sex together, they're in a loyal, loving, consenting relationship, they're not causing harm to anybody. But if there's a male and a male and a female and a female having sex with each other, they're not causing harm to anyone either they're in a loyal loving consenting relationship the buddha understood this 2500 years ago that's how wise that he was nowadays people are just starting to kind of become aware of this that there's no harm in two people of the same gender having sex with each other but there's a vast majority of the world that doesn't understand this and because of their craving for every man to have sex with a female and every female to have sex with a male they get angry if they don't get their permanence. If they don't get their craving fulfilled, they can be angry and hateful. But if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, is it possible for every man to be interested in having sex with a woman? Is that even possible? Is it possible for every woman to be interested in having sex with a male? It's just not possible. So same gender relationships have been happening ever since the beginning of time. You can see in the original teachings of the Buddha where he talks about men who don't identify with masculine qualities and females who don't identify with feminine qualities, but he doesn't teach anything about it. He just makes the observation and lets his students know that this is the case, but he doesn't teach anything because it's completely normal because the body is one thing and the mind is something completely different. So you can be born into a body that has male sexual organs, but you could identify as a female because the mind is a different gender. And if you understand the cycle of rebirth, that we've all had many different births in the past, that there's been times where maybe right now you might be with a body that has female or male sexual organs, but in the past you've been other genders. So it's very understandable that an individual might come into this life with a mind that identifies as one gender and the body being a different gender. This is completely normal. So same gender relationships, they're not causing harm to anyone. Transgender individuals, they're not causing harm to anyone. It's completely normal that the body is of one gender and the mind is of a different gender. But there's people in the world that have craving for these things to be permanent. But if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you can understand why the Buddha didn't include that as sexual misconduct. So you'll see this in his words tomorrow when I share this with you. But I usually like to just give you a heads up because when you see this refraining from sexual misconduct, you might be curious what that includes. So if you prefer same gender relationships or you know somebody who does, it's completely normal. It's not causing harm to anyone. The Buddha is describing harmful sexual conduct in this particular teaching that you'll see tomorrow. Okay, so this is right action. And there's other actions beyond this that the Buddha describes too. He describes refraining from substances that cause heedlessness, which we'll talk about tomorrow. He talks about refraining from gambling because this is a bodily action that causes harm based in craving, desire, attachment. Because if you gamble and you're losing your money, you're not going to be able to provide for the basic necessities that you have in life. So there's multiple bodily actions that could cause harm. And he's not giving you an exhaustive list. But if you understand what he's teaching you, which is this cause and effect or action and result, you can see that wherever you're causing harm with your bodily actions, that harm is going to come back to you. Okay, so we'll go through this some more tomorrow, but this is what right action is. Then there's right livelihood. In what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. What our livelihood is, is how you choose to sustain your life. This is like your job or occupation, how you choose to receive an income because everybody needs to sustain their life by providing some type of benefit to humanity. And as a result of that, we're then able to acquire the resources that we need in order to sustain our life. So the Buddha teaches you to not cause harm through your livelihood. Here in the Eightfold Path, he's just talking very generally and he's pointing to his other teachings on right livelihood. So underneath of this line, I have some of the teachings that he shares on right livelihood because in the Eightfold Path, he just talks about it generally. So there's these two different levels of purification of your livelihood where you're interested in performing a livelihood that isn't causing harm to others. In this first teaching, he's giving you five livelihoods that could potentially cause harm to others. And then you can learn them, you can reflect on them, and then you can practice to be able to see the truth for yourself. So here he talks about business and weapons, living beings, meat, substances that cause heedlessness, and then poisons. And all five of these, if you had a livelihood in one of these, that's actually causing harm to other beings, so this harm is gonna come to you. So as I mentioned, you can independently verify all of his teachings, but let's just take one of these. Let's take substances that cause heedlessness. Let's just say I was on the street corner and I was selling cocaine or crystal meth or heroin, and I'm putting this into the community. I'm causing harm to the community because now people are going around stealing, robbing, doing all kinds of things in order to get money for me to be able to provide this service, right? Well, standing on that street corner, I could get beat up, I could get robbed, I could get murdered, I could get addicted to my own substance. I could get arrested. These are all things that can occur to me because I'm causing harm in the community, and now this harm comes back to me. This is the natural law of gamma, the cause and effect. But remember, this natural law of gamma, it's functioning at a much higher level. It's not just the human laws, right? The human laws are kind of imperfect. They can't really be equally developed and administered and enforced equally. But the natural law of gamma is performing at a much higher level. So your government could tell you that it's okay if you go work in a liquor store. It's not against the law. You could go be a cashier at a liquor store if you'd like, but would it be a wise thing to do if you understand the natural law of gamma? In some places, liquor stores commonly get robbed those people that are working there, they might get beat up, they might get injured, they might get murdered as a result of this. This is the natural law of karma. So if you're learning and practicing the natural law of Gamma, it's a much higher law than anything that any government has ever created. So if you're learning and practicing the natural law of karma, you'll never have any issues with your government. So the government might tell you that it's okay for you to go work in these kinds of places and do these kinds of things. But if you understand the natural law of karma, you might decide that it would be unwise for you to take a job at a liquor store for example if you understand this particular teaching so this is one aspect of right livelihood here's another part of right livelihood where the buddha talks about how you conduct your livelihood he talks about ensuring that you're not scheming flattering hinting belittling or pursuing gain with gain what scheming is is like corruption so let's just say that i was a police officer It's not one of those five that you saw there. Or say I was a politician. It's not one of those five that you saw there that would cause harm. But if I was scheming and I was corrupt as a politician, let's just say 10, 15, 20 years into my career, I get discovered and I get found out. Now I'm gonna have a lot of trouble getting reelected And I'm not going to be able to sustain myself. So if you're looking to create a life for yourself where you're able to function in the world and sustain your life through your livelihood, it would be wise to not have corruption or scheming in whatever livelihood that you choose. And then the Buddha talks about flattery. What this is, is this is like insincere comments that you might make to your customers or to your partners, your business partners. Whereas if you were just flattering them just to get them to buy products from you, They're going to discover that. So if you're in business and you're kind of having this flattery, these insincere comments, people might smile, they might laugh, they might giggle, they might buy something from you from time to time, but they're going to be thinking about that in the way that you interacted with them and they're going to be able to see through that. And you're not going to be able to build wholesome relationships. So the Buddha is teaching you not to have these insincere, just flattery comments that are just for people to purchase things from you. It's not going to be able to help you develop a real wholesome livelihood. Then he talks about hinting. What this is, is not having clear and direct communication in your work and in your career. Whereas if you're just kind of very vague about how you do certain projects, like maybe you're on a project team and now you're meeting with your boss and there's like five people on your team and then there's your boss. And now you guys are reporting into your boss and you're like, well, I did my part, but I'm not sure about Barbara and what she ended up doing. I did my stuff, right? Like you're kind of hinting. You don't need to do that. You can just be clear like, hey boss, this is what we did. This is what we were able to accomplish and here's the work, right? You just be very clear, very direct instead of kind of like hinting around. Then there's belittling. This is like being degrading or disparaging to your coworkers about your business partners. Like if you were degrading and diminishing about your competition, for example, if you were in business, your customers are going to hear that they're not going to like the fact that you're degrading and belittling your competition. And you're going to find that you have more difficulties in your life with your livelihood because people aren't going to be interested in purchasing and doing business with you because they hear you constantly belittling people. So it would be unwise to belittle your coworkers or your competition, your business partners, or people like that. What pursuing gain with gain is, This is where you're just taking a job for the sake of taking the job, just for the profit. Maybe you're just collecting a paycheck. You really don't care about the product. You really don't care about the service. You're not really enthused or motivated about this work. You're just showing up for a paycheck each day. If you've ever had a job like this, you probably dragged yourself to work each and every day, and you really despise going to work each and every day. So if you're gonna get to this peaceful and joyful mental state of enlightenment, Your mind is going to be peaceful and joyful, but your life is going to be peaceful and joyful. You will have created the perfect life for yourself. There isn't anything that you would have changed. So if each day you have to go to this place for eight hours or 10 hours that you despise and you really don't like it, you're going to feel unmotivated, Unenthused going to this place each and every day. And if you're only going for the money and that's all that you want, well, eventually that's going to wear out and you're going to realize that there's nothing else here but money. You're not developing your skills. You're not developing your ability to apply your effort and energy in in the workforce. And you're going to feel like you're dragging to go to this job each day. So the Buddha teaches you to not take a job just for the sake of money. That if you have enthusiasm and motivation to do this work, then when you wake up each day, you know It's going to be really wonderful to go to work and share whatever it is that you're sharing. You're going to be very motivated and enthused. You're going to thoroughly enjoy this work. By the time you purify your livelihood, you'll get to the point where whatever you're doing, it doesn't even feel like work anymore. It's like, wow, I would do this even if I didn't get paid. Of course, you need to get paid in order to sustain your life, but by the time you purify your livelihood, you will enjoy the work that you're doing so well. It won't even feel like work, and if you didn't get paid, you would be completely fine with that. Of course, you're going to need to get paid in order to sustain your life, but you would do this work even if you didn't get paid. You enjoy it that much. That's what you would like to get to with your livelihood. So this is the moral conduct section, and by the way, there's more teachings about right livelihood beyond this. If you're either in between jobs or you're looking to get a new job, I would guide you to volume 12, chapter 14 of this book series, because the Buddha has additional teachings about your livelihood. And you can see there in volume 12, chapter 14, this is what we call the first level of purification or the first fold. In order to purify your livelihood to the first fold, you would need to ensure you're not causing harm to beings, through any of these five livelihoods in that you're not practicing these and there you'll feel much better about the work you're doing each day. Remember it's cause and effect. These aren't a bunch of rules. He's helping you to be able to see the natural law of gamma. So you're going to feel much better about the work you're doing when you get to the first fold, but there's a second fold or there's a second level of purification that is described in volume 12, chapter 14. So if you're looking to get a new job or you're in between jobs, or you're not really sure about the current job that you're having, that would be a book for you to look at in a Chapter for you to look at. So, just to summarize the moral conduct, remember right speech is to not cause harm through any of your verbal conduct, but then also understanding this as right communication, because during the lifetime of the Buddha, all they had was speech, but we have verbal communication, we have text messages, chat, we have social media posts, we have emails. All of this should be harmless using those five factors of well spoken speech. Then there's right action which is not causing harm through your bodily actions. All your bodily actions should be harmless. And the Buddha gives you those first three to get you started because those are very impactful decisions that you can make around your bodily actions. But then there's others as well that you would like to pay attention to that you're not causing harm through any of your bodily actions. And then look at your livelihood and look at ensuring that you're not causing harm through the way that you sustain your life using the guidance that the Buddha is sharing with you here so this is the moral conduct section do you guys have any questions on this yes sir
8: yeah so um about the heedlessness uh, stuff um so i have a uh, friends that uh, run sort of uh, ayahuasca and magic mushroom retreats uh seems to be helping people quite a bit um What would you say about that?
1: Yeah, so this is part of that unknowing of true reality that the mind has, that lack of wisdom, that people think that psychedelic substances are helping them get to enlightenment. But what those psychedelic substances are doing is they're putting the mind in a state where it can be introspective and you can look inward, but it's doing that based on a substance and that means it's temporary, that it arises, changes, and fades away. In order to get to enlightenment, you need to develop the natural ability to look inward and be introspective and be reflective. You can't get to enlightenment based on a substance, but people are knowing of true reality. They think that they're coming out of those experiences with some kind of extra wisdom, but what they're lacking is the ability to do that naturally. So you won't be able to get to enlightenment as long as you're using a psychedelic substance. The way that I think about it is It's kind of like going window shopping and you're out on the street on the sidewalk and you're looking at all the stores and like you see this beautiful handbag or you see this beautiful object inside the store and it looks amazing, but you're chained down to the sidewalk. All you can do is look in the window and you can see that product, but you can't actually go in and touch it. Because that's what you're experiencing when you're on those psychedelic trips is you can kind of look and kind of see what enlightenment kind of looks like, but you can't ever really actually experience it because the mind is still chained down because it's only able to experience that through this substance that they can't get to that point naturally.
8: Yeah, Uh, not fully my question Uh, is more of the, would it be wrong uh, livelihood to conduct those retreats? Oh, Uh, I see. Part of my sort of journey is opening up that window to see something and then continue on with meditation and stuff. So is it harmful to conduct it? Because Ye- it's it's heedless in a way.
1: Yes, that's business and substances that cause heedlessness. If yeah. you're hosting a retreat, so would you say it's harmful. Giving out those things. Yeah, it's causing harm. Because now those beings in those retreats, they're being led to believe that these substances are helping them get closer and closer to awakening and to a higher consciousness and to enlightenment. And now they're walking away with some unknowing of true reality, with more delusion, with more confusion. You're not actually helping the world and you're inducing these substances. And now when you go out with these substances, you can easily get harmed, right? There's people who have walked out in front of cars or jumped off of buildings and things like this when they're on those psychedelic trips. And this is causing harm in the world. Okay. And by the way, I should add with all this moral conduct section is that the Buddha, as I've mentioned, isn't trying to convince you to do anything. Even me, I'm not trying to convince you to do anything. I'm not trying to force you to do anything. We're just showing you the cause and effect or the action and result. What somebody chooses to do in their life, it's up to them. What they choose to do, everybody's choices and decisions are going to lead to some result. So what you choose to do in your life is your choice. But if you're interested in learning the natural law of gamma, that's what we're sharing with you. And then it's up to you to decide for yourself what you choose to do. You know, I've had students that come here and they learn and they tell me about taking psychedelic trips and stuff like that. And I did that in the past, too, when I was younger. Not for that purpose, but I've done that. And then sometimes people learn with me and then they still, you know, they go have these psychedelic trips and they're still learning with me. So my interest to help you and my willingness to help you isn't contingent on you being perfect today, right? Because it's not possible for you to snap your fingers and be able to see true reality and be perfect today in the way that the Buddha is describing. But what he's showing you is this cause and effect. So using this example, that as long as you take substances that cause heedlessness, it's going to affect your mindfulness or your awareness of mind which is what we're about to talk about now and as long as your mind is cloudy and not having that awareness of mind you're not going to be able to see the unwholesome qualities in the wholesome qualities that are in your mind to then purify it and be able to get to this enlightened mental state so the buddha is sharing with you guidance to help you see this cause and effect this natural law of gamma and then what you choose to do is your choice and then you can see this causality that yes, when I use substances that cause heedlessness, then it produces these kinds of effects, but it's actually not producing long-term benefit. So you're going to see this with the teachings of the Buddha where he's sharing certain things with you and you may not be able to see the truth in those things right now. And that's where you can ask questions and you can ask for help and ask for support. And I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't think about these things. What I'm sharing with you is what I've come to based on my understanding of the teachings and what I see with this natural law of gamma. And then you learn that you reflect on it to independently verify it you practice it and see the truth so if you purge your life of any of taking of substances that cause heedlessness you'll see that the condition of the mind will only improve and improve and improve and by going to retreats that don't include substances that cause heedlessness you'll be able to learn the actual teachings to develop the ability to look inward and be introspective and reflective and that's what you're going to ultimately need in order to be able to get to enlightenment.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, sure. But those things by themselves aren't going to lead you to enlightenment. You ultimately need to let those go. Mm -hmm. Okay, it looks like you have a question, Rachel. To answer the question already. Mm -hmm.
8: um, So the same applies for weed here in Thailand. There's so many shops of weed and everybody's always smoking weed. With that applied also to moral conduct or? Yeah, we're going to be talking
1: about this tomorrow with the five precepts where you'll see that with marijuana, there's a big gray area, right? It's not that it always produces heedlessness or it's always for heedlessness. Certain people do take it for heedlessness and not everybody smokes marijuana, but I understand mm -hmm. what you're sharing. But there's also some medical benefits with marijuana too, but it's all about why you're ingesting it and how you ingest it. So if you're ingesting it for a high, you're probably going to be looking for a high THC. People oftentimes smoke it right but if you're looking for the medical benefits of the marijuana plant you're usually looking for a high cbd and a very low thc and you might take it by an oil because there's children who have like 20 seizures a day and they get a little cbd oil and they don't have another seizure for six months so it's very clear that this plant provides medical benefit but it's all about why you're taking it and how you're taking it to determine whether it's going to affect the health of this body or not, or the health of this mind. So each individual can look at their practice and figure out for themselves, are you taking this marijuana for a high or are you taking it for a real medical purpose? And some people think that they're taking marijuana to eliminate stress or anxiety or things like this, But marijuana is not going to solve that problem. What we talked about with Right View is that what's causing that is craving, desire, attachment. So you can't eliminate stress and anxiety through smoking marijuana. But some people are led to believe that this is what they're doing. So if you work on eliminating craving, desire, attachment, an individual can actually eliminate their stress and anxiety. But as long as they're using marijuana and thinking that that's helping them, it's actually not because it's just covering it up. And as soon as they're not on marijuana anymore, the stress and anxiety is still there. So, if an individual eliminates the craving, desire, attachment, they can eliminate their stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Any other questions you guys have on right action or any of these moral conduct section? Yep, we have some coming in online as well. May I ask? Yeah, go ahead. Thank
6: you. Please. So, um, so my question is about. Uh, um, one of activity uh, um, uh, for monk, of monks. So monks are supposed to go um, begging with a begging bowl. So I have to seen here maybe I maybe because of uh, I'm not so early bird and then also I I haven't been in a kind of market in the early morning. So so I wonder um, the kind of the benefit of, about the training for monks. Mm-hmm. um so so um, um my understanding is just uh, one training for mm-hmm. being a good monk uh, but also what i thought is so uh, considering um but and um, a monk in western maybe it's a christianity so they don't do the same thing so they might uh, um so create a form by themselves but uh, they don't go to cre- um begging so Okay.
1: So let me explain this to you. So the ordained practitioners aren't going down the street begging for food, because if you were begging, that would be a craving, desire, attachment. What they're doing is they're walking down the street and they're providing the opportunity for household practitioners to practice generosity. By a household practitioner practicing generosity, they're giving and sharing, and it's training their mind to let go, to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, which we were talking about earlier. So that's an opportunity for them to practice generosity if they like. Then what it's helping the ordained practitioners do is they're eliminating central desire where central desire is where the mind has that craving, desire, attachment, longing, yearning, wanting things to be a certain way. So when you sit down for a meal, for example, you select your food and you select specific foods. And now you might select foods that you like and that you enjoy. And if you eat those foods, you get pleasant feelings. But if you eat some foods that you don't like, Now you maybe get frustrated or agitated or annoyed or you're just repulsed by that food. This is because of the mind's central desire. It sees these things as agreeable, and it sees these things as disagreeable based on cravings, desires, attachments in the mind. But if you walk down the street and you just eat whatever's in your bowl, your mind's not getting an opportunity to choose what you eat. So in this situation, by just eating whatever you're given, you get the opportunity to eliminate sensual desire. So there's ways that you can mimic this in your own life so that you can train your mind to not be attached to certain foods, because right now you might be attached to certain foods, or you might be eating based in emotion sometimes. Sometimes if you get angry or sad or feeling lonely or bored, you might eat just to try to get back to these conditioned pleasant feelings so you can train your mind to not do that so the ordained practitioners have a certain discipline that they're practicing to be able to help them do that but then if you understand that there's ways to replicate it in your life as a household practitioner as well so like when you go into a restaurant when you open a menu you're probably going to pick what you like what you want but if you would like to practice Similarly to the ordained practitioners, when the food server comes, you could say, What do you recommend to eat? And they say, Oh, I recommend that. You're like, All right, I'll take that. Right. And even if it's something you would never order ever and you don't like this food, if you just train your mind to eat it and see food as something that sustains your life and sustains the body, oftentimes the way the unenlightened mind sees food is it's something to please the tongue and thus please the mind. And you'll chase after foods that you want rather than just eating to sustain the health of the body so if you just eat whatever is given to you then you can train your mind that this food is just to sustain the health of the body it's not to please the mind and please the tongue Mm -hmm.
9: thank you so much it's really Mm -hmm. good to know (laughs) thank you
1: yeah you're welcome yes ma'am
9: well talking about food i have a question Mm -hmm. about last night Mm -hmm. um I can't eat any gluten and get really sick and it's a little bit challenging in Thailand. Um, so I was at the night market last night and I have a nice paper in Thai uh, asking people to help me not to put soy sauce and all the things that contains gluten. And it's quite challenging because then, well, somebody, sometimes people don't want to read or they can't read. Mm-hmm. Or they're not willing to help, or so, by the fourth time trying, well I still um yeah but I was not angry or um so I not misbehaved, but I could feel like, okay, so I can eat rice, that's always possible, but I was not there yet to accept or to really give up my desire to have some vegetables and some other food, and then I got to a point like, okay, so I took action, 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 action. Um, yeah, but I got quite emotional, so I could stay like, okay, what's next? And well, I was just wondering like, because there is a lot of emotions being rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> trying to eat healthy, and I was tired. It was eight o'clock um Mm -hmm. so of course i can eat some fruits and i could eat some rice and i i felt like okay maybe i should act like a monk but then i still had those feelings inside not about anger but i felt like okay really this is quite difficult and Mm -hmm. challenging and yeah yeah
1: so, now that you understand the Four Noble Truths a bit, the right view that any emotions that's coming up in your mind is being caused by your own cravings, desires, attachments. Now that you understand that and you need to overcome those, then, as I mentioned, with a calm mind, then you can start making wise decisions. And if I was having issues with gluten, what I know is that they have things online that you can download and you can print, or you can have it on your phone, right? That is in Thai that says, like, you know, I. I'm allergic to gluten, you know, please don't use this, 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 and you can show it to the vendors. And then when it's written in Thai, then they can understand it because you're going to need to communicate that if you're allergic to it and you're going to have a bodily reaction. If you eat something that you're allergic to, there's the craving desire attachment that's causing the mind to be discontent. But then there's the wise decision making to ensure that this body gets what it needs so that's what i would recommend for you is to get something that has this and if you can't find it let me know i can help you download it so you have it i
9: have one and i was yeah maybe i did not uh say it very well but i do have this paper and they reject it oh i see either they are they are from myanmar so they can't read Mm -hmm. they don't want to read because Mm -hmm. they're busy or yeah so they don't even if I say, please, can you read this paper? And I ask mm-hmm. very nice. And sometimes they do, many times, but yesterday four people didn't want to or whatever, mm-hmm. what was the reason. And then those feelings comes up like, okay, you know, and then, yeah. yeah. This is
1: where you'll need to be sure you don't have a craving for people to pay attention to it, right? Because not everybody's going to pay attention to it and not everyone's going to practice These teachings where they're going to have care and loving kindness and compassion for you. So you're going to need to seek out people that are willing to understand and you're going to need to take your time with that. So that means like with your limitation with eating, you're probably going to need to seek that out long before this body ever gets hungry. Right. So that if you normally get hungry at eight o'clock. Probably around 6.30 or so, you should kind of be looking for some food, particularly in a street vendor environment where they're just trying to hurry up and make food and get it served. You might find that going to restaurants, they're more willing to sit down and look at that. But just observe your own mind that you don't have a craving that you might have to go through two, three, four, five, six restaurants before somebody's willing to look at it and listen and understand. Because that's what the mind needs to get to is where you don't have a craving for everybody to do any particular thing, that you understand that these people, each individual in the world, they're functioning if they're unenlightened through their own cravings, right? Maybe that street vendor really wants to make a whole lot of money and they don't have time to pay attention to what it is that you're talking about. So because of their craving, they're not practicing this genuine interest in seeing you be well, this loving kindness. So what you're looking for is someone who's loving and kind. So what you might need to do is stand in line, kind of smile at the person. Hi, how are you? Would you be able to help me with something? You know, the things that you learn in moral conduct section will actually help you to improve your karma, that you're talking gently, you're smiling, you're being peaceful, but still it's not going to be a hundred percent because of impermanence. You're going to encounter somebody who just isn't interested in dealing with this special type of food that you're looking for.
9: Yeah. That, I also understand that but i was just wondering like okay because then the body gets involved Mm -hmm. and probably because of the 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 craving that you want to eat something because then i felt like really in the heart like uh, emotional and um well i I thought well what's the next step in this to to Mm -hmm. to, so okay you have this bodily uh, reaction and what is the step is it like being nice to myself or or feel like it's okay or
1: i'm going to explain to you next what is going on with the body when the body is experiencing hunger pain this is just the body experiencing hunger pain you're going to experience this sometimes in your life sometimes people think like the grumpiness even though you didn't mention this but the grumpiness and the irritability in the mind They think it's because they're hungry and they think it's biological, but it's actually not biological that's causing this. It's the mind craving for the body to be permanently comfortable, not realizing that this body is going to be uncomfortable sometimes. That's the nature of impermanence, that this body can't be permanently comfortable. So if you crave permanent comfort with the body, when you experience those hunger pains, You'll get irritated, you'll get grumpy, you'll get agitated. And that'll be harder for you to then talk with the vendors to be able to get the food that you need because you're not going to be able to use right intention, right speech, and right action, right? So that's why the Buddha teaches you as part of right view to maintain your calmness and composure through understanding what the real problem is so that now you can function where you can maintain your calmness and composure and just realize, okay, this hunger, pain, this is the body experiencing impermanence and you can maintain your calmness and composure if you're not craving for permanence. So just like this body can't be permanently comfortable, it's not gonna permanently be uncomfortable either because you can fix that, you can get some food. So if you can maintain your calmness and composure, you'll be able to then practice right intention, right speech and right action more readily and then acquire the things that you need. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Okay, we have a question here coming in on Zoom me here let's see uh it looks like uh yahang i'm sorry if i'm not pronouncing your name correctly i know we've met and i tried to pronounce your name before but hopefully i'm pronouncing your name right so it says in right livelihood would it be possible to distinguish medical products and poison substances that cause heedlessness in modern society. I feel there are many drugs discovered from pharmaceutical industry. Okay, so Let me go back to Right Livelihood so you guys can see here. Okay. So what Right Livelihood is talking about here is substances that cause heedlessness, meaning the intention behind it is to cause heedlessness, where the mind is inattentive, unalert. This is what heedlessness is, unmindful, uncalm, inattentive, and unalert. And if that's the purpose behind the substance, things like cocaine, Crystal meth, LSD, ayahuasca, some people who take marijuana. There's lots of different substances like this, alcohol is like this. Now, there are prescription medicines that can actually produce heedlessness too. Like some people abuse a certain opioids that we take for maybe pain relief. So there are pharmaceuticals in, in that industry. They're actually practicing to heal and to help people. That's their ultimate goal. But then the individual, might choose out of their wrong action to now take this pharmaceutical substance in order to produce heedlessness. But the industry itself, the pharmaceutical industry itself is looking to provide helpful solutions to medical issues. So someone who's in the pharmaceutical industry, they're practicing right livelihood because their intention behind this is to heal. But if the patient decides to use this substance for heedlessness, then that's what they're choosing to do. And now this is part of their wrong action. But in terms of right action, a person working in the pharmaceutical industry, if their intention is to heal and help, from a medical perspective, then they're practicing this right livelihood. And did you have a question? Mm -hmm. Mm. So that's why, so the question here is, you know, what about the intention behind it? You don't always know what the intention is. So this is where the practice of you getting to enlightenment, it's your practice right? It's not based on what other people are doing. So if you're working in the pharmaceutical industry and you're choosing to do this out of the intention to help and heal, then that's your practice. What other people choose to do, if they're doing something that is opposite of the natural law of karma. They're going to experience those results. That's that person's decisions. It's their life, their decisions, and their results. What the Buddha's focusing on is improving the condition of your mind through you gaining wisdom, rather than trying to convince other people of something to do. Okay, can you use the mic? Because we got a bunch of people. We got a lot of people online.
8: Uh, yeah. So then, with the ayahuasca and magic mushroom, then so there's research. Uh, now with the magic mushrooms, right? That they are sort of supposedly helping with the, um, depression and stuff. Uh, and, uh, and my friends that run the retreats like, seem to have a very good intention in, in, to help people heal in that way. And also speaking from my own experience, it can help at a certain stage. So the intention, even though it's heedless, right?
1: right. So this comes down to a lack of wisdom. Right, because they're not understanding what's causing the depression. What's causing the sadness and the depression isn't the chemicals in the brain, which is what a lot of people think. It's actually the craving, desire, attachment, the longing, the yearning. That's what's causing that. So as long as you're functioning opposite of the natural laws of existence, you're gonna experience unwholesome results. So even if someone has full intention to heal and to not cause harm, they haven't fully cultivated the wisdom section of the full path, which is right view, and that's why they're making unwise decisions in that situation, and then they're gonna experience unwholesome results as part of that. But that's their decision, right? What you're looking to do is get to the point where you understand the wisdom and if other people are choosing to do those things then so be it but at least you get to the wisdom all right thanks Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next part of our discussion here, which is the mental discipline section. This is where you're going to learn right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this is what's going to really pull it together for you and actually help you to practice the moral conduct section. So the wisdom section is informing your ability to then practice your moral conduct. And then the mental discipline is helping you to then be able to practice the actual moral conduct. So here, I'm going to read this to you, what the Buddha teaches, and then I'm going to help you to understand what it is. So here, the Buddha is sharing in what monks is right effort. Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to overcome evil unwholesome Mental States that have arisen. He rouses His will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts His mind and strives to produce unarisen Wholesome Mental States. He rouses His will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts His mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So there's four aspects of right effort that the Buddha is talking about here, and I've listed them out here. He's talking about preventing unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising in the mind, abandoning unwholesome mental states that have arisen, Produce unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind and maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. And I'm going to explain these through examples. So this first one, preventing unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising in the mind. Now, these are just examples. Everyone's going to have unique examples here, but let's just say at this point, you have no interest in killing a human being. It's not even something that's remotely in your mind. It's so far outside of your mind that you're not even thinking about killing another human being. What the Buddha is saying is part of right effort is prevent that from ever coming into the mind. Don't allow that to come into the mind because it's an unwholesome mental state to be wanting to kill another human being and you know it's going to produce unwholesome results for you. So the Buddha is saying apply the effort to prevent this unwholesome quality from ever coming into the mind because it's not currently in the mind. And then the second one is abandoning unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. Let's say that you are in a current relationship and you have a craving to have sex outside of your current relationship. And this is a certain unwholesome quality that is arising in your mind. The Buddha is saying, apply the effort to abandon this out of your mind because this is an unwholesome quality. Or let's just say you become angry or frustrated or irritated. This is an unwholesome quality that is arising in the mind. So the Buddha is saying, apply the right effort to abandon that and eliminate it from the mind. Then the third one here is produce unarisen, wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. What this is, is as you're learning on the path to enlightenment, there are certain wholesome qualities that you're going to learn about, that you're going to need to produce in the mind in order to get to enlightenment. So something like generosity, maybe you're a pretty selfish person, perhaps, maybe you don't share easily, maybe it's hard for you to share with other people. But when you learn about generosity on this path and that it's a wholesome quality, it's going to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The Buddha is saying, apply the right effort to bring this wholesome quality of generosity into the mind, or maybe compassion. 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 is the concern for the misfortune of others. Maybe you're pretty indifferent. When you see people suffering, when you see people having misfortune, maybe you could care less. What the Buddha is saying is when you see that wholesome quality that is not currently in your mind... He's saying apply the effort to bring that into the mind. And then this fourth one is maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. This is any wholesome qualities that are currently in your mind. You're going to need to support those, encourage them, don't allow them to fade. And it's going to take the effort to be able to do that. So there's certain unwholesome qualities that are in your mind and there's certain wholesome qualities that are currently in your mind. And where you see those wholesome qualities, support them, encourage them, don't allow them to fade. Loving kindness might be an example of that. Loving kindness is genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, that you have active goodwill towards others. Maybe in certain situations you have that, but in other situations you don't. The opposite of loving kindness is anger and bitterness and hostility. So where you see that your mind hasn't fully cultivated this wholesome quality, the Buddha is saying apply the effort to cultivate that in the mind. Or maybe sympathetic joy. What sympathetic joy is, is this is joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So this is the opposite of jealousy or envy. So if you notice that you do have joy for others' success when they accomplish something, but in other situations, maybe you're jealous or envious. So you currently have that wholesome quality in your mind, but the Buddha is saying, apply the effort to bring that to full growth and full perfection and development in the mind. Apply the effort to do that. So these are just examples that I'm using to illustrate what he's teaching you to do. What is wholesome in your mind and what is unwholesome in your mind is unique to you. And that's where you're going to need that introspection, that reflection to be able to see the unwholesome qualities and the wholesome qualities. And what the Buddha is saying is where you see unwholesome qualities, eliminate those from the mind. And any unwholesome qualities are not currently in your mind, prevent them from ever coming into the mind. And he's saying any wholesome qualities that are not currently in your mind, bring them into the mind or any wholesome qualities that are currently in your mind, support them, encourage them, don't allow them to fade. The way that I teach this to my young son is kick out the unwholesome and bring in the wholesome. That's what he's talking about here, applying the effort to do that. You have a question? Uh, Let me go through all three and then I'll get back to all the questions. Okay, so this is right effort and just some examples for you guys. So now I'll share with you right mindfulness. I'm going to do the same thing. I'll read it to you and then I'm going to teach it to you how to apply it. So here the Buddha says, in what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings. Dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind. Dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects dedicated clearly aware and mindful having put aside craving and worry for the world this is called right mindfulness so what he's talking about here in general is awareness of mind he's teaching you to have this awareness of mind that right now in the unenlightened state oftentimes individuals go through life and you're not even aware of what's going on in the mind you're not aware if you're grumpy if you're irritated or you're annoyed you're just not aware of that stuff you're just kind of plowing through life the way that i think about it is you're like. Plowing through the forest, knocking down the trees, burning up the forest, and you're probably looking around, who who lit the fire, right? Or the mind doesn't have this awareness of mind. You're going to need to have awareness of mind. And this might be the way that you think about it when you're first getting started on the Eightfold Path. It's just think about right mindfulness as awareness of mind. But then as you get going, you're going to need to develop what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. That's what the Buddha is actually talking about here, is these four foundations. What he's describing to you in the four foundations of mindfulness is he's describing the life cycle that discontentedness is going to go through as it's starting to arise in the mind. He's talking about bodily sensations, having the awareness of of these bodily sensations he's talking about certain feelings that are in the mind he's talking about the condition of the mind and he's talking about the mental objects so when you have craving desire attachment in your mind you're wanting things to be a certain way when you get what you want you get those conditioned pleasant feelings happiness excitement elation thrill acceleration euphoria this is what we talked about in right view but then when you don't get what you want You get those painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and all these others. Well, when those cravings are in your mind and you experience contact through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind, these are called the six sense bases. When you experience contact through these six sense bases, based on your cravings, you're going to experience these bodily sensations so if somebody does something that you don't want and you're about to get angry there's going to be some bodily sensations first either you're going to feel tingling in the body you're going to feel tightening in the chest you're going to feel pain in the heart you might feel tightening in your throat you might feel heat in your face you might feel pressure in the skull these are the bodily sensations associated with anger or frustration or irritation starting to arise This is like an early warning system telling you, hey, you're about to get angry. Hey, you're about to get frustrated. This is the mind kind of cluing in. If you have awareness of the bodily sensations, you get this early warning system of knowing you're about to get angry. And what the Buddha teaches you is to apply right effort to cut it off and let it go there. Because if you can cut it off as a bodily sensation, you've just saved your mind the whole issue of experiencing the next part. The next part is that if you don't cut it off as a bodily sensation, it's now going to become a feeling where the mind is now angry. The mind is now irritated. The mind is now bored or lonely or frustrated or some other discontent feeling. And you can cut it off and let it go there too. But the ideal thing to do would be to cut it off as a bodily sensation. But if you miss it there, it's going to become a feeling. And now if you don't cut it off as a feeling, it's going to start affecting the condition of your mind. Have you ever been angry or irritated for like a couple of hours or a couple of days or like a week or two? Of course you have, right? That's because you didn't understand the natural laws of existence, that this whole thing is going on. What the Buddha is teaching you is the life cycle that discontentedness is taking, so that you can take action to fix it and you can retrain the mind. You can rewire the mind. So, if you miss it as a bodily sensation or you miss it as a feeling, it's going to start affecting the condition of your mind for several hours, days, or a week or two. And you can cut it off and let it go there too. And if you don't, it's going to feed this mental object. A mental object is like a deeply rooted container in the mind. Those 10 fetters those are all mental objects. So in this situation, this craving desire attachment that is a rising anger in the mind, it's feeding this mental object of ill will. Remember the fetter of ill will, that's number five on those list of pollutions. So the Buddha is showing you how to rewire the mind. That if you keep allowing the mind to get these conditioned feelings, you're going to keep experiencing this discontentedness over and over again. So if you can develop this awareness of mind where you're aware of the bodily sensations that are occurring associated with any discontent feelings and you can cut it off and let it go there you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble because your mind's not going to experience that conditioned feeling this is kind of like if you were in a boat and you were going from like australia to indonesia and you're in the middle of the ocean you would like to prevent the water from ever coming into the boat because once the water gets in the boat you got a real problem to deal with. The same thing is true as once your mind becomes angry or frustrated, you got a real problem to deal with. Now your intentions, your speech, your actions can be bitter and harsh and hostile because your mind's now just become angry and frustrated. So if you can build this awareness of the mind more closely, the four foundations of mindfulness, where you can be more and more attentive and more and more aware and alert of those bodily sensations, you can cut it off and let it go there. Essentially, rather than allowing the mind to get this conditioned feeling, you can break that up. You can rewire the mind to no longer get this conditioned feeling. You can restrain the mind. And now through eliminating your cravings, desires, attachments, you'll ultimately get to the point where you don't experience any arising of any discontentedness at all because all your cravings have been eliminated. So this is the consistent ongoing training. in. The next step that I'm going to teach you is what's going to help you to be able to do this, right? So, you're essentially putting a blockade on these bodily sensations, not allowing the mind to form this conditioned feeling. And then, all the while, you're working to eliminate and uproot these mental objects, these pollutions that are in the mind. Now, the next step is right concentration. This is the eighth factor on the Eightfold Path. And what the Buddha is describing here is he's describing the results. Of having practiced the entire Eightfold Path. He's describing the jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. So I'm not going to read this for you because he's explaining the results of practicing the Eightfold Path but in other teachings he describes how to practice right concentration now what i'm going to do is i'm going to teach you how to practice right concentration so that you can experience the results of these jhanas which are preliminary phases that the mind's going to experience certain qualities of mind that you're going to start noticing so these are the qualities of mind that you're going to start noticing as you start putting together the eightfold path more and more closely so the way that you practice right concentration is through developing a daily meditation practice In practicing singleness of mind in daily life. Your meditation practice is how you're arising right concentration. So when you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, like you have done in this course already, you're focused on the breath. And when your mind moves off the breath, you're arising mindfulness or awareness of mind, that you're aware the mind just moved off the breath. And you're developing that awareness of mind more and more readily. And you're developing concentration to be able to focus on the breath. And when the mind moves off the breath, you're training the mind to cut that off and let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath, bring the mind back to the breath, bring the mind back to the breath. So you're not trying to eliminate your thoughts in meditation. You're trying to get the mind to more easily let go. So now, if in meditation, this breathing mindfulness meditation, you've developed mindfulness or awareness of mind, you've developed concentration and the ability to easily let go in your daily life when you're out and about and you notice those bodily sensations coming that the mind's about to get angry you can apply right effort and cut it off and let it go so all of these steps are connected that through you practicing breathing mindfulness meditation developing your mind with mindfulness and concentration you're going to have more discipline of your mind more control of your mind and now with your awareness of mind whenever you notice bodily sensations associated with discontentedness that is arising, you can apply right effort to cut it off. So even like if you're shy, if you're getting shy, like if you have stage fright or something, you have butterflies in the stomach, we call it butterflies in the stomach. But what that is is just queasiness that the stomach's experiencing. It's bodily sensation that is associated with this craving-desire attachment that you have. And now your mind is cluing into that. You can cut that off and let it go if you've been training your mind in meditation readily. So the more that you're training in meditation two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, you build up your meditation practice, your mind gets better and better at spotting those bodily sensations and then cutting them off and letting them go to eventually you eliminate all your cravings, desires, attachments and the mind won't experience any discontentedness any longer. But this two to three times a day for 30 minutes or more, this takes time to build up to. Some students take six months, a year, even two years to build up to that. So you need that gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress to build up to that. And then there's another meditation called loving kindness meditation. This is helping you eliminate the ill will, the anger, the hostility, the bitterness. And this is a meditation that you can learn in other courses and retreats that I teach because you're going to need that one as well. And then there's two other specialized meditations that the Buddha taught that are used on an as-needed basis. It helps you to eliminate sexual cravings and it helps you to realize non-self. So there's only four meditations that the Buddha ever really taught Where what you see in the world is you see like hundreds and hundreds of different meditations, but you only actually really need to learn two. And then there's two others that you may or may not actually need. This way you can get really deep in your meditation practice. So as you're developing your mind on a daily basis with meditation, then you go out into the world and you practice singleness of mind. What singleness of mind is, is doing just one thing at a time. You might have been taught to multitask. This is part of the unknowing of true reality that people think that their mind is actually capable of multitasking. It's not actually possible to multitask. Your mind can only actually do one thing at a time. You might do one thing for three seconds or five seconds, and then you rapidly cycle to something else. And you do that for five seconds, eight seconds, and then you rapidly cycle to something else. And if you do this all day long for eight hours, you're going to get home and it's going to be hard to relax. You're gonna feel very stressed. Your mind's gonna be overactive because it's constantly bouncing from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. The Buddha's teaching you to just do one thing at a time. So if you're talking on the phone, you're watching TV and you're eating a sandwich, you're not actually doing all three things at the same time. You're talking on the phone for a few seconds, you're watching the TV for a few seconds, and you're eating your sandwich for a few seconds. And when you get off the phone, you're like, what did we even talk about? You don't even remember what you talked about because you weren't concentrated. You didn't have right concentration. You might have agreed to certain things, that you totally forgot, and now you've left this person hanging perhaps. You didn't really digest the TV program and you didn't digest the food. You might actually have a stomachache afterwards. So while you think with multitasking that you're actually accomplishing more things, In reality, this conversation went longer than it had to go. Whereas if you would have just had the conversation, it probably would have been 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes and done and over with. And you wouldn't have had to follow it back up and clean up whatever you needed to clean up. Because if you're talking on the phone, you're watching TV and you're eating a sandwich, you're not going to be able to practice right intention and right speech. You might say something aggressive and hostile and bitter. You're not going to be able to bring forth your full wisdom to have this conversation with your mom or your dad or brothers and sisters. And now when you damage the relationship, you're going to have to go back and clean that up. So by the time you try to multitask, you think that you're actually doing more and you're accomplishing more, but you're actually not because you're spending more time on the phone and you're having to clean these things up. Whereas if you just practice singleness of mind, you handle that conversation, done over with, nothing to go clean up. And now your mind can be more focused. Essentially what you're doing with right concentration is you can think about it like you have a piece of wood and you have a steel rod and you're grinding this steel rod back and forth on the wood. And when you first start practicing the teachings of the Buddha, your mind's kind of bouncing all around like this steel rod bouncing around on the wood. But if you grind this steel rod back and forth enough, eventually you get a nice groove in the wood and this steel rod is deep down into this groove and it's very hard for it to pop out. And if it does pop out, you'll know it and you can bring it right back. So as you train your mind with right concentration, practicing meditation and singleness of mind more and more, your mind will only ever be in the present moment. You'll be focused, you'll be concentrated, everything you do, you can bring forth clarity of mind. But if you're out there trying to bounce around and do many different things at one time, you'll be in a business meeting and your mind will be off wandering somewhere else. And you're not really applying your wisdom to the project that you're dealing with and where you could actually improve your career. Or if you're on the phone call, your mind's wandering. So you guys might be practicing right concentration right now where you're focused on my voice and you're learning to practice right concentration. Maybe your mind wants to be thinking about lunch and what you're going to eat for lunch, but you pull it back. You pull it back and you pull it back because if you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, you can train your mind to come back to the present moment and just reside in the present moment more and And as you do this for longer and longer periods of time, your mind will get so used to being in the present moment, it will be physically impossible for it to bounce out of that because you've got that nice groove worn into the wood. So this right concentration is helping you to practice all the other teachings because you have focus and clarity and concentration in the mind. So that's what right concentration is all about. So just to give you guys a little bit of a summary here, and then I'll open up the questions that you guys have, is right effort is taking the initiative to eliminate certain unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate certain wholesome qualities of the mind. Right mindfulness is having awareness of mind. You might think about it that way generally, but more specifically, you would like to develop the four foundations of mindfulness, the bodily sensations, the the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. You're going to need to have awareness of all four of those things. Then right concentration is to practice meditation and develop singleness of mind to the point where you're experiencing the jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And that's breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. You know, people didn't talk about multitasking until about the 1960s. That's where computers came out. And computers can actually multitask because they have a computer processor. They can do multiple tasks at one time. But a human being's mind can't actually do more than one thing at a time. It's part of the mind's delusion or confusion to think that it can. So when computers came out, people started thinking that human beings could function like a computer, but a human mind can't actually do what a computer can do. That's why we have computers to do those things. So we just do one thing at a time. So if you're writing an email, and you've got a YouTube video playing in the background, that's very unwise because now your mind's having to switch between both of those things. Just pause the YouTube video, write your email, and then when you're done, unpause the video and watch the video, right? This way you can bring your full focus and concentration to that email using the five factors of well-spoken speech so that now you can have great healthy relationships as you're communicating with people. This is the Eightfold Path in its entirety, each individual step. You're going to need to learn this more than one time. You're going to need to dial it in closer and closer. And it's going to just take time for you to gradually learn this and gradually implement it in your life. But slowly but surely, you can get help with this. And I'm here to help you to learn it and understand it and develop it. But just be patient with yourself, but be diligent at the same time to learning it and implementing it in your life, dialing it in closer and closer. So do you guys have any questions on this? you still have your question?
10: Oh, uh, I was just curious if uh, it would become an attachment to having wholesome thoughts. You were explaining how to only have like, wholesome thoughts and to kick the unwholesome thoughts out. Mm-hmm. I was just curious if that's more of a desire and an attachment to only having wholesome thoughts.
1: It depends on how the mind looks at it, right? So it's not about the object. So for example, an individual can be attached to water right? This is something that you need in your life is water. So it's not the object that is the problem. But let me give you this example so that then I'll circle back and explain this to you. Let's just say that you're going on a hike and you've decided you're going to go on the six hour hike in the forest and you have this liter of water in your car and you're on your way to The trailhead to go on this hike. And now you get outside the car, you go on this hike, 30 minutes in, 45 minutes in, you realize that you forgot your water back at the car. And you're like, oh my goodness, my water, my water, I forgot my water, where's the water? And now you hurry up to get back to the car. Maybe you twist your ankle along the way. You sling open the door, ah, water, 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 water. This is the mind craving, longing, yearning for the water. But that doesn't have to be the case. You could be out on this trail 30 minutes into your hike and be like, hmm, I forgot my water. I'm going to be out here for a while. I should probably go get that. Let me go get it. And now you calmly turn around, you calmly go get your water. You open up the door. Oh, there's my water. All right, let's go on a walk. Let's go on a hike, right? So the object is the same, the water. The difference is, is how the mind is craving, longing, yearning for it. So this idea of having wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts you could approach it as a craving, desire, attachment. Like once some people find out about enlightenment and how peaceful and joyful the mind can be, some people crave it. Some people chase after it. Some people long and yearn for it. But as long as you're doing that, you won't actually be able to get to it. But also, if you were over here where you were indifferent and you could care less about what goes on in your mind, you're not going to get to enlightenment there either. So, the middle way with any of this kind of stuff of having the ability to cultivate wholesome and unwholesome thoughts is to develop it as a goal. As an objective or an interest, and something that you gradually work towards, rather than chasing after it, or rather than being indifferent, you just gradually work towards it as a goal, objective, or interest. Mm-hmm. You're welcome.
5: I'm not quite sure. I know the difference between effort, right effort, and striving. Mm-hmm. So striving has an energy of fixing. So, um, if you could talk to
1: that, sure. It. Some people refer to right effort as right striving, where you are applying the effort or the energy or the initiative towards eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and cultivating certain wholesome qualities. And you'll need to practice all four of those efforts that the Buddha is describing here, which is Whenever there's any unwholesome qualities that aren't in the mind, you prevent those. That's applying effort to do that. You're not forcing it. You're not controlling it, but you're applying the effort. You're not indifferent, but you're not chasing after it either. You're just noticing like, "Hmm, yeah, I don't feel like killing a human being and I'm never going to allow that to come into the mind, right? Or some of these others, if you notice that unwholesome quality of craving sexual contact outside of a relationship. If you notice that pops up, maybe you're in a relationship, your partner's in another country, you're here in Thailand, you're walking through the mall. You're like, hmm, that person looks interesting. You decide like, no, let me apply the effort to cut that out. That's going to damage my relationship. I'm not interested in that. Or if you notice that anger coming up, like, The example you gave when your neighbor came over, you apply the effort to cut that off and just handle the situation however you need to best handle that. Or if there are certain wholesome qualities that you need to bring into the mind, you apply the effort. Or certain wholesome qualities that are currently in your mind, you apply the effort, the energy to be able to do that. You show initiative to be able to arise those wholesome qualities in the mind.
5: Is the calmness of the mind then the difference between the striving and fixing
1: So if you're obsessed about these things, that's like the craving, the desire, right? Where, yes, if you're calm, if you're just like, yeah, I know I need to do some work here. I'm a work in progress. Let me apply effort and energy. I'm coming to the temple each day. I'm going to meditate. I'm applying this effort and energy. But let's just say like you miss meditation one day. If you have a craving, desire, attachment, even for meditation, you'll be frustrated. You'll be agitated. You'll be disappointed in yourself. That you missed meditation rather than be like you know what meditation is impermanent i'm going to have this goal i'm going to have this objective to meditate each day but you realize occasionally you're probably going to miss meditation and that's okay because your enlightenment is not going to be determined if you miss meditation today or not your enlightenment is going to be determined as can you consistently meditate each day over the course of the next several years that's what's going to determine. Now that you have missed meditation, what do you do next? Do you beat yourself up about it, feeling all guilty and disappointed? Or do you realize, you know what, I'm a work in progress. I'm going to really apply more effort to ensure that I do this each day, realizing that occasionally you might miss a meditation. So if you missed, you know, 50 meditations a month, surely you need to do some more work there. Whereas if you miss like one or two or three a month, it's like, all right, well, I'm pretty much working towards the goal that I'm working towards. But if you understand impermanence, you'll know that it's not possible for you to permanently meditate three times a day, every single day for the rest of your life. It's just not possible. So that's why I give you this guidance of two or three times a day. For 30 minutes or more, that's what you would like to build up to gradually and realize that you need to apply effort to do that. And where you aren't able to do that, you just understand like, okay, I'm going to just make more and more space in my life to try to accomplish this goal. Yeah, be very kind to yourself. Having loving kindness for other beings, you got to start with yourself and have loving kindness for yourself. Mm -hmm.
10: Question or maybe just a realization that I'd love to... Mm -hmm. speak to maybe um from my understanding there's something called limiting attitudes um and one of them is the attitude from going from zero to 100 so that kind of extreme i guess that pendulum swinging Mm -hmm. and i'm curious as to whether the core root of of that is a craving and desire of permanence so if someone does miss their meditation for one day they go, Oh, well, I've missed it now. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. And then that kind of gives them the illusion of permanence again. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So what I would describe, this is like the limiting, uh, attitude is what you're saying. I would call this like conditioning of the mind where the mind's like conditioned to think one particular way. And it's not willing to look at any other perspective where, The other part of that, which you're describing is like, if you miss a meditation and you're like, oh, well, I'm not going to meditate anymore. This is indifference or complacency. The Buddha describes it as complacency where the mind becomes complacent. So you're not interested in being complacent, but you're not interested in chasing after things either. So that's where you need to get to this middle way where you gradually work towards a certain goal. So if you start with meditation once a day for five minutes, okay, that's where you start. Wonderful. But then you gradually expand it. Or if you start with twice a day for 10 minutes. Okay, great. That's where you're starting. And then you gradually expand it. So, here in this course, you'll be meditating for twice a day if you meditate with us each day. And then you can maybe get a third one in the evening. And then you just gradually expand that. And that's what I'm doing with you guys. Because yesterday we only meditated for about 10 minutes or so. This morning we meditated for about 15 minutes. I don't know if you guys even noticed. And then each time I'll just gradually expand it a little bit for you guys. But then you're going to need to do that on your own and apply the effort to do that.
10: Uh, so I guess I, I feel like we can often, people can often go from that really striving and right effort to then that indifference, like that real uh, swing, and then they go through their indifference for a bit and that's where they're at their zero, and then they go, you know what, I'm going to pick myself up, new year, new me, I'm going to go to gym every single day, and they do it every single day for a month, and then they miss one session, and then yeah. they go, oh, well. Themselves. Yeah, like that kind of so yeah
1: that's the craving desire attachment yeah. and that's going to burn out and yeah. that's why people will do it for a period of time and then they're like oh forget it i'm not going to do it anymore so what you're looking to get to is a sustainable life practice yes. developing a life practice and the way that you sustain that is you make decisions that aren't based in craving and then when you see the mind is indifferent you kind of lift it up a bit with this right effort so that it brings it into this middle because oftentimes the underlying mind only knows how to chase things with craving desire attachment and when you let that go the mind swings to this other side of indifference it doesn't just let go of the craving and come right to the middle never does that right it's going to overshoot that middle but then when you're over there and you're like ah this doesn't feel comfortable either then you might actually start craving a little bit more but not as much as you did before. So you kind of like wind and and twist until you get to the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions online and I don't see any more here either. So it's now, oh, it's almost one o'clock. I thought it was 1230. We had a lot of discussion. Would you guys be okay with a one hour lunch today? I know we normally take an hour and a half, but that'll give us some time. If we get back together at two o'clock, which is essentially one hour from now, that'll give you guys basically an hour and five minutes, and then we can pick it up. I'm going to teach you guys breathing mindfulness meditation this afternoon, and then we'll actually do a meditation session together. So, everybody good with that? Some impermanence here. I know I said an hour and a half, but we'll change it up. Nobody's craving an hour and a half. Nobody's going to get angry or frustrated. All right. So you guys enjoy your lunch and we'll see you guys at two o'clock. Okay? Enjoy.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadalywisdom.com.